Hello everyone and welcome once again to Ultimate Motorcycling's weekly podcast, Motos and Friends. My name is Arthur Coldwells. In the first segment this week, senior editor Nick DeSena gives us his take on the Kramer Evo 2-690SP. As you might guess, this is a KTM-powered turnkey race or track-only motorcycle that's available to all enthusiasts of speed. The Kramer's amazing lightweight and impeccable handling were too much temptation for Nick, who decided to race it in the recent armor round at the Barber Motorsports Park Vintage Festival. He did well. In our second segment this week, editor-at-large Neil Bailey chats with Neil Spaulding. Neil is arguably the MotoGP technology writer, and as well as magazines and newspapers, he also writes the technical summaries for the MotoGP season review and MotoCourse. Neil is also the author of the critically acclaimed series of books on MotoGP technology, the officially licensed technical analysis of the class. He was also part of the British Eurosport MotoGP commentary team. So Neil is not just a technical whiz, he also raced in a long club career where he actually won two championships. Ultimately, he went on to run his own team in the British Supersport Championship. He's worked in MotoGP for the last 15 years, and when not at the circuits, Neil runs Sigma Performance, a supplier of racing slipper clutches. So, from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. Don't forget, we're still running our Cortec Light Gloves giveaway. Simply go to the Ultimate Motorcycling Instagram or Facebook page and find the Cortec Light Gloves post. All you have to do is like the post, and two winners will be selected at random each week. We will message you if you're one of the lucky winners. Please note, this is only open to residents of the USA. Kramer uses KTM engines for all of its builds. Um, you know, they're up to a handful of models at this point. Uh, they have the single cylinder powered models, the 690s, which is, um, you know, developed from the 690 Duke. And it still continues on today in the 690 Enduro R and the 690 SMCR. So the, the dual sport platforms. Um, but yeah, Kramer kind of follows a, an interesting tradition that we've seen a handful of times in the motorcycling industry. I think one of the most um, prominent figures of a brand building a chassis around a, a sourced motor would be something like Bimota. Uh, the difference between Kramer and Bimota is that Bimota is sort of an exotic engineering exercise in many ways, whereas Kramer develops and builds turnkey race bikes uh, with a unique twist, um, which is already a twist in of itself because the market for turnkey race bikes, and when I say turnkey, I mean, they are 100% ready to go down to the safety wire, um, ready to race. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> that market for turnkey race bikes is pretty small. There's only a handful of manufacturers that really dabble any, anything that's that focused and that serious, but this is exactly what Kramer is, is really angling for. So yeah, we're going to be talking about the Evo 2 690S, which is their entry level product. Uh, you know, you can consider it the gateway racer, so to speak. 
So it's their base level bike. And yeah, for $16,000, you can essentially buy a bike and start racing immediately. So there's some pretty big advantages and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Wow. Okay. So I guess, first of all, if this is a race bike, which class does it race in? Um, I haven't seen any of these in Moto America, have we? Or, or is it just so is it a club racing bike or where, where would you actually see this thing compete? Yeah. So classes are going to be pretty diverse. Um, in the United States, Kramer Motorcycles USA, which is headed up by uh, Joe Carvonen, or I can't remember if that's how I pronounce his last name. Uh, anyway, he's based out of Fargo, North Dakota. They are the exclusive importer for Kramer Motorcycles, which is a German brand uh, based out of Berghausen, which I'm I'm not going to even attempt to pronounce properly, but we're going to get to the ballpark. <laughs> Um, and they've just opened up a brand new 43,000 square foot manufacturing facility there uh, to accommodate, you know, some pretty, pretty good growth that they've seen in the last handful of years. But more to the point, where would you race a Kramer? Okay, so club racing um, is basically going to be your bread and butter for racing it. In the professional racing paddocks, we're still pretty isolated to your mainstream categories you have your your lightweights so your your ninja 400s and r3s and ktm rc 390s so on and so forth you have your middleweight twins so that'd be your sv650s your rs660s uh, yzfr7 etc etc you have your super sport 600s um so your traditional inline four 600s and then you know the odd triumph that sneaks in there and uh well actually now i need to update that one uh, we have the next gen super sport 600 class right that, uh, has nearly 1000 cc ducatis in it anyway uh, <laughs> and then you have your traditional leader bike classes um so you know your general just super bike class and things like that uh the kramer is an interesting bike because it splits the difference between a lot of different classes or not a lot of different classes but a few different classes we'll say um, going off the spec sheet, and you know, this is something that a lot of different racing organizations are gonna do. Um, you know, you're looking at a bike that tips the scales at 285 pounds wet. Wow. So that's significantly lighter than pretty much any production bike uh, to date. And its direct reference point is gonna be a competitor to the Evo 2690S is something like the Aprilia RS660 Trofeo, which is Aprilia's race-only build, so a factory race bike straight out of the Aprilia. Um, and that thing tips the scales at about roughly 90 or so pounds heavier at about 375-ish, um, give or take. And what's interesting with the Evo 2 platform, it can actually become much lighter. And so the R spec model is about 10 pounds lighter. And then if you start playing with some other options, you can get it even lower. Um, wow. Guys, carbon wheels, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, <clears throat> my whole point about talking about uh, weight and things like that is because you, you want to be balanced. So you want to balance weight with power and, and performance, et cetera, et cetera. So on paper, it might seem like it's kind of a big lightweight of some kind. In reality, it would fit in with your middleweight tw twins class. So could this bike race in Moto America? Ostensibly, yes, but Moto America won't allow it. Um, 
it hasn't been homologated for that class. Now we've seen Kramer race in some other um, professional racing series. Uh, BSB had something a, a couple of years back. I believe that was the GP2 um, and that was a spec championship. So the GP2 is based on the um, the 890 uh, KTM power plant. So the, the 890 engine that's in the, uh, the 890 Dukes and a derivative of that is in the 890 Adventure platform. At any rate, um, yeah, it, it's it's interesting because in club racing, things can be a little bit more flexible. And, you know, right now the Kramer is, you know, geared towards track use and club racing. In the professional paddocks, that's a discussion that Kramer is definitely trying to open up and opening up in certain ways. Um, Moto America hasn't allowed things like Kramer's, uh, you know, suitor bikes or any of the other hyper-specialized motorcycles that may be on the market. Um, you know, I can't speak to the reasons why they're not allowing them because uh, I'm just not well-informed enough. But, uh, you know, that's where we are right now. So, yeah, it is a specialized product and, you know, club racing is your thing. But a lot of clubs allow Kramer's, if not all of them. Um, and, you know, for the sake of our story, we were racing with Arma, which is the American Historic uh, Racing. Hold on. What's the acronym again? Where are you? I've written you down before. Yes, American Historic Racing Motorcycle uh, Association. Uh, Arma is pretty much known in the United States as the Vintage Racing Club. Uh, it is a national club, so it's not something that just happens on the West Coast or the East Coast. They have rounds throughout the United States. And you know, their whole thing is just not only like vintage bikes, but they cater to, you know, the most eclectic and exclusive and exotic bikes in, in, in the realm. And, you know, <clears throat> they have GP uh, classes. So bikes that are specifically designed for prototype race bikes. And, you know, going back a handful of years, you used to be able to buy turnkey race bikes from, Yamaha and Honda and Kawasaki. Um, the Japanese brands haven't dabbled in that in many, many, many years, but that used to be a thing. And Arma is one of the few clubs that literally caters to these people and, uh, you know, this super passionate fan group or a uh, fan base, sorry. And, you know, we, we attended the final round of the 2023 American Historic Racing Motorcycle Association season at Barber Motorsports Park for the Barber Vintage Festival. And that's kind of the, the Shangri-La of vintage racing. You know, the, the Vintage Fest, I think the numbers when it came out at the end of the weekend, it was 82,000 people overall. Um, so a lot of people came out uh, for that weekend, to, you know, to see the, the, the swap meet, the museum, the racing. It's just a massive, massive kind of fest. And, um, <laughs> you know, the armor racing is a big part of that, but Kramer, uh, helps out armor. They work together with things. And, um, yeah, if you're going to race a Kramer in the United States, obviously, you know, you're, you're going to have to look at your club rules and see where it can sneak in and it will be able to sneak in somewhere. Um, you know, probably against the twins or something like that. Um, but Kramer's are becoming more and more popular. So, you know, there's, there's going to be more grids out there where it's just going to be a bunch of Kramers and, um, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll kind of see how things develop from there. But for our cases, we were with Arma, and Arma is just 
kind of a whole separate thing into of itself but yeah, yeah in a nutshell that's so where do you race it wherever you can <laughs> that's kind of <laughs> long and short of that one well i guess going into the componentry of it um you know it's using the 690 you know ktm engine um have they done anything to the motor or is this just a simply a stock sort of you know crate motor that's just bolted into a lightweight chassis yeah that's kind of the beauty of it uh it is a stock engine and i i hear a lot of people that would say oh well it's such a you know super specialized product it should be built this and that i understand that from a certain perspective however from a club racing perspective and just a maintenance perspective i would say that using a stock engine provides a lot of different benefits namely it's a stock engine so you're not going to have to adhere to any extreme service intervals and you won't have to constantly tear it down the way that you would a built engine uh, because they are subject to much much higher degrees of scrutiny and uh, care um to that end, you're looking at an engine that puts out a claimed 80 horsepower to the crank. And, you know, you're probably going to get somewhere around 70, 75 horsepower to the rear wheel, depending. Um, you know, they do do a handful of things, obviously, to make it uh, ready to race. So, you know, KTM slogan is ready to race, but this thing actually is ready to race. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, one of the main changes is, of course, there's a full exhaust system on it. And it's neatly tucked away underneath the bike. So it's completely protected. The muffler is actually mounted underneath the engine. So you don't have to worry about low siding it and then smashing a, you know, a can and things like that. Um, and then also it's remapped, uh, obviously. So it has a, a, a series of different fuel maps that you can select on the fly. Uh, essentially you have four total maps, but they're really interchangeable. There's, um, uh, pump fuel maps, and then also race fuel maps. It's designed for different octanes. And then there's also a high and a low uh, engine brake setting as well. Um, they've also gone ahead and raised the red line about 1,000 RPM above stock. And really, that those are the only changes. Um, now, if you want to get into some of the other nitty-gritty, obviously, it does have uh, an optimized airbox routing because it is in a different uh, packaging it's no longer in a 690 Duke or a, or some sort of dual sport bike. Um, you know, this is a bespoke chassis overall. And that's, that's, you know, just some of the changes, but mechanically it's pretty much the same thing that you're going to find in any 690 Duke Enduro R SMCR. And for me, like I said before, that is a, a big help because say you're a club racing guy or gal, and you need, just need some general service parts, you walk into your KTM dealer and there you go, everything's good. And on that note too, it's not some exotic engine that only you know, a, a race technician can work on. Um, valve servicing, just general maintenance. If you're not capable of doing that on your own, then you, know, you can drop it off at your KTM dealer and they might be a little confused about the look of it, but... Uh, <laughs> when they pop the the plastics off and start getting into the engine, you know, any any authorized KTM dealer can can touch this without without being too freaked out. So yeah, that's kind of what we're working with. Um okay. and you know, you know, that's 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 the heart of the the 690.
But for me, the Kramer is a story about a chassis. And that's kind of what you're buying when you when you pick one of these things up. Yeah. And uh, speaking of the chassis, are all of the Kramer models made with the tubular chassis or? or... So between all of the models, they have the the 690 and the 690R. <clears throat> Those are the single cylinder platforms. And then they have the 890 and, or yeah, the GP2, 890R and the double R. And uh, again, all uh, steel trellis frame design, custom swing arm, uh, and all of them have that really cool uh, XPE plastic fuel tank. So if you look at photos, you're going to see the subframe is this kind of chunky plastic subframe. It's yeah. bolted in there with these, you know, four fat bolts, two to each side, obviously. And uh, just kind of looks very slick. Well, what you might not realize is that's actually the fuel tank. Um, and that's a Kramer thing. So that, 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 that's on all of their bikes. And, you know, we'll get into why they did that in a you know few seconds here, but yeah, the steel trellis frame and swing arm is a, a Kramer designed product. Um, and for that, we got to kind of wind back the clocks a little bit and talk about the history of the brand because it is pretty interesting. Um, you know, back in 2009, essentially, three KTM engineers uh, that really loved super mono racing and subsequently super moto racing, um, you know, started working on an after hours project at the KTM factory. And what they did is they took a 690 Duke chassis, 690 Duke engine, and a random assortment of leftover RC8 uh, parts. So mainly the suspension and things like that. And I'm not talking about the RC8C, I'm talking about the original RC8 V-Twin Superbike from way back when. Um, and they developed that bike for a number of years. Uh, they spent basically four, four years and change developing that. And then Marcus Kramer, the man with the name on the side of the bike, decided to formally found uh, the company. And <clears throat> that led to the, the Evo 2. And, you know, they've since simplified the naming uh, convention since then. It used to be called the HKR-EVO2, 690, okay, whatever. <laughs> um, and HKR, HKR represented the uh, first letter of the last name of each engineer that was involved. Um, but, you know, here we are. They now have four models, and it's a bit of an alphabet soup um, to run that HKR thing. So... <laughs> Not too right. important, but that brings us here. And the entire purpose of the Kramer was to build something that is just an uncompromising race-ready platform that focused on all of the things that super mono racing and super moto racing uh, also focuses on, which is lightweight and amazing power to weight ratios. So in a nutshell, that's what a Kramer is going for. It's always going to be an extreme uh at an extreme weight advantage to any production motorcycle because frankly a production bike just can't get these kind of weights in most cases it would be very tough for them for for any other manufacturer to to match what we're we're getting here whether we're talking to the 690 or the 890 platforms yeah i mean nearly a hundred pounds lighter than an aprilia trofeo that's and the aprilia trofeo is light so that's impressive that is very impressive yeah. remember single cylinder engine 
<clears throat> so it it doesn't have you know the same cylinder count okay fair enough but 100 pounds is or about 100 pounds still about 100 pounds and that's uh pretty incredible regardless and i don't know the weight of a race ready r7 because i don't have um you know i a cited number on that obviously those that's going to be pretty variable because there there isn't a production version of that motorcycle but that kind of leads us into the chassis and so the steel trolls frame it leans on established super sport kind of precedent and geometry we'll say um but everything is adjustable and that's sort of the key with a kramer that you may not see on even motorcycles that have been race prepped you have um you know a adjustable ride height with a shock you have fully adjustable uh, fork um you have swing arm pivot point that's adjustable to three positions you know a high a medium and a low you also have uh triple clamps that can use a, a concentric insert to adjust rake and trail i mean everything is completely adjustable down to the ergonomics uh seat height can be you know adjusted up and down so that whole fuel tank thing can be lifted um and then there's all of the crash protection that's baked in as well you know if you look at the photos online you'll see frame sliders and you know kind of little bobbins that really look you know from basically off the shelf and that's not the case you know it while this isn't mentioned in the story the frame slider uses a bracket that's actually more malleable metal so it will bend before it affects the chassis in any negative way in the same way there's frame sliders on that plastic fuel tank piece uh there's kind of frame sliders on the swing arm area with an additional little little um slider on the left hand side and then there's the race bodywork uh, that's kramer designed I'm not, not sure if they manufacture that, but they might partner with someone for that one. And it's super sleek and super low profile. And it's a weird thing to talk about, you know, the crashability of a motorcycle. But having seen some Kramers go down in the past, it it's just not comparable. Uh, they survive, you know, the rigors of racing pretty hard. And few manufacturers consider you know, what their bikes will look like when they're laying on their side or flipping through the air. Uh, the reality is in most cases, when a bike goes down, it goes down pretty hard. So you have things like the crash protection, the, the sliders, replaceable sliders, and in and, and just the basic um, thought process that goes into the entire bike with that muffler being tucked away, the low profile plastics, everything about this has a mind with every aspect of racing. And not just the good parts. So, pretty incredible. So, I I guess while we're still talking about the chassis, in terms of suspension, what what suspensions added on there? Yes. So it has a fully adjustable WP shock, uh, ride height adjustable, by the way. And this particular Kramer unit was equipped with a drop-in Andriani cartridge. Um, it's just a little bit step up from the standard uh, fork that comes on it, which is still a WP fork. So to be clear, it's still using a 43 millimeter WP fork, but this particular unit had had an upgrade with the, the Andriani uh, drop-in cartridge. Um, and you can go beyond that as well on the R model. So 
kind of talking about the chassis, because again, when you're buying a Kramer, you're really buying a chassis. It's the engine is just kind of there to be an engine and it's a good engine, but the chassis is the story here. And what's sort of interesting for me is, you know, my generation of motorcyclists, you know, anyone in that mid thirties to about, you know, early forties, uh, generation motorcyclists really just slightly missed the boat with two-stroke uh, race bikes. And when I'm, you know, talking about two-stroke race bikes, I mean like TZ250s and RS250s and things like that. And and especially so if you happen to be American, because that stuff was definitely in the United States, but not to the same prevalence that it was in European countries or you know Australia or you know many 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 other nations. And so. I've had a lot of, you know, different colleagues over the years, guys with, you know, a lot more experience, Don Kinney, Ken Kenesugu, you know, they'd always talk about racing two-stroke spike way back when, and, you know, just kind of tell me, oh man, like, you know, the, the handling of these bikes, it's just a four-stroke can't match it. It's just too big. It's too heavy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I have no context for any of this, right? Because I've never ridden any of these bikes. And they started kind of bordering on myth for me. And <laughs> until Iconic Motorsports opened up in Santa Monica, I'd never even like, like seen any of this stuff in person. So I'd still never ridden it. And I still haven't. But until meeting the Kramer, I never had context. Now I'm starting to understand what they're talking about. Cause this thing weighs 285 pounds, which again is light, 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 you know, for context, for the listener, we're usually riding bikes that regardless of the horsepower are in the high three hundreds. If it's a, you know, low displacement bike. And if it's a middleweight and above, it's going to be 400 pounds and above essentially. Okay. And you lop off a hundred pounds of off of anything, and it's going to behave a lot different. What's what's critical to understand is that the Kramer is built for essentially a normal sized person. You know, a lot of these old two-stroke race bikes are teensy tiny little things for Max Biaggi sized people. Um, and Max Biaggi, you know, the Roman Emperor, um, you know, he's a little dude. Not, not throwing any shade at him, but like that is the the market and not the market, but the the intended user for a lot of these old school two-stroke race bikes is you got to be light and you got to be small. So, you know, I'm 5'10 and uh, I fit on the Kramer just fine because it's about the same length, we'll say, as your average super bike, but the width is insanely narrow. It's on par with your dual sport um, packaging, which makes sense as it's a single cylinder engine. Um, so you got plenty of wiggle room, but the chassis in particular, and that's the beauty of this bike is just the stiffness that comes through the frame and swing arm specifically. Um, what you're, you're always gonna notice on a production bike, and this is something that I particularly was aware of when riding this bike is, you know, I race a Ninja 400. And that's a production motorcycle that's been converted to a race bike. And I've done a lot of things to gain stiffness in the chassis, particularly when you're on the edge of the tire. So manufacturers do a lot of different things to essentially 
compromise the chassis in the name of say comfort and or compliance. Because if you think about a production bike, it needs to do a lot of different things. It needs to ride on the road. And if it is a sportier model, it needs to go around a racetrack pretty good too. But those are two very extreme opposite goals because your road pace and the road quality is much different from your track pace and the track quality. That said, you know, uh, torsional rigidity, flex, suspension setup, these are all things that are that that a production bike may struggle with against, you know, a race only motorcycle. And the Kramer has, it doesn't have to make any compromise. It doesn't have to adhere to any sort of regulation or internal standards set by the company. They're a race company. They don't care. All they want to do is go around a racetrack as fast as possible. So this thing just feels firm and not just the suspension at all. I'm talking about the actual chassis to fit. It's hardcore. You're on the edge of the tire and the, the amount of feedback that you get from that can be a little bit overwhelming at first. And that's before you even take in how fast it steers. I mean, the first couple laps that I was on the bike, I was essentially over steering into every corner where I would normally turn in on pretty much any other motorcycle or even lightweight bike. You know, it, it, it takes so much less effort to get this thing turned in. And then, of course, the confidence that you get from the chassis overall. So those first couple laps, we're just sort of figuring things out. And what immediately comes through is the front end feel. It's really tough not to feel like a complete superhero when you're riding this thing. And it, regardless of your actual skill level, because I'm not an expert club racer. I club race once or twice a year do track days on my Ninja 400, but I'm not consistent just because schedules. And, you know, what ends up happening is you you get into situations where bikes can easily outmotor you, especially at a corner heavy track, like, um, or sorry, just they can outmotor you regardless. But at a corner heavy track like Barber, something like the Kramer comes into, into its own. And so, you'll often find yourself ducking underneath people where you might not do on a different bike just because of the trust that you have in that front end and the stability that you get from the chassis. And then on the flip side of it, you'll you'll suddenly start thinking like, well, I can kind of put this thing wherever I want. So I'll just try to go around the outside and see what happens. Because you're, you're always trying to optimize roll speed the same way that you would with a 400 class motorcycle. So there's a lot of similarities in the way that I would run the 400 or race the 400 as, and then they translate directly to the 690. The difference is this thing is infinitely more uh, race ready. It's far stiffer, has more horsepower. But that same logic of maintaining your corner speed and not, um, not squandering it definitely applies. Now with the suspension in particular, uh, we are using that WP shock and the WP fork with the Andrionic cartridge in it. Um, when I when we always talk about chassis stiffness, in reviews, we often relate the two, you know, the frame and the swing arm and the suspension, and we're talking about it all as one unit. In this case, I'd like to make the distinction. So the frame and swing arm, super stiff. But the suspension itself, we ended up running kind of a more compliant setup because that's just what I prefer personally. 
but um, you can do whatever you want. And again, you have all of the adjustability in the world to, you know, go and spin laps and really set this thing up for you. And that's kind of the joy of a bike like this is it's just, it's about the chassis and there's a purity in that, that you really don't get from a lot of motorcycles. Um, you know, the KTM, the, the 690 is a fun little engine and not taking anything away from it. But at the end of the day, this bike is about its chassis and its weight. And that really shines through. So when we were racing in the, uh, I think that was, I think we raced in the Arma Sound of Thunder. I want to say, yeah, I want to say it was the Sound of Sound of Thunder 2 class. Yes, Sound of Thunder 2, which is a really diverse grid. It has other singles, has motards, which are singles, has air and water-cooled uh, twin engine powered bikes and it has triple cylinder engine bikes so you got old ducatis in there uh you have some old honda twins in there too some triumphs anyway super diverse but all those bikes have a lot more horsepower than what i got mm -hmm. anyway you know since i had no part points in arma and they grid up by a point system um you i started, started in the back, back of the grid yeah back of the grid baby and uh yeah, you just kind of work your way through it um so i started one race in like 30 something like i want to say it was like either 30th or 31st and then ended in like 15th or something which sounds ridiculous but it just kind of shows you it's like you know arma skill levels are all over the map you got uh stefano mesa in some of the races and uh, <laughs> you got me and then a dentist from Florida that owns a bunch of vintage race bikes. It's Arma's really unique in that sense where it's, you know, people are there to race and it's definitely gentlemen racing essentially. Um, but it, it brings like everyone together. Whereas club racing can be a little more focused, you know, depending on the club as well. And then if you go to pro racing, well, it's pro racing, but um you know, and, and to be clear, Stefano Mesa was just running in the, the paid races. So that's, you know, there are certain ARMA classes and ARMA races that really attract a, a certain type of person. And they're not really going to intermingle with, you know, the more um, enthusiast racers, we'll say, at, at ARMA. So it's not too much of an issue. But um, that said, yeah, this bike is just about its handling. And the handling is stunning. It's like I said, you have, you have to kind of wrap your head around it and take a couple minutes and understand that you can do a lot more with this thing than you would on a lot of production motorcycles. And just the stiffness that you, you see in it and the, the potential, it, it's not really matched in production bikes. Cause again, they're always making some sort of compromise, um, in some capacity. And that can really expose some, some big issues. Now, my main reference would be the Ninja 400 um, as a street bike. Totally cool. And especially for what it's aiming to do, which is get people in the saddle and just bring people into motorcycling or bring people back into motorcycling. And as a race machine, well, obviously it's little steel trellis frame could be stiffer. You know, it's in its traditional fork has some flex to it. Um, the gearbox is definitely not up for, for racing right out of the gate. Um, 
there's a lot of things that need to be worked on before you even get it in the ballpark. And it's still never going to reach what a Kramer can achieve. Uh, you know, the RS 660, that's a much higher pedigree of a motorcycle, but even then it still started life as a production bike. So there are some inherent design things in the chassis that may not be as focused. So are there any downsides to that? Well, yes, if we're being blunt. Now, Barber is an insanely smooth racetrack. And if you were to take the Kramer to, oh, I don't know, Willow Springs International Raceway, or otherwise known as a motocross track that happens to be paved, um, probably wouldn't feel as brilliant because, you know, bumpier track, it's going to put a lot more feedback into the rider and, you know, ostensibly not so great. So maybe that com more compliant bike would do a little bit better, but, you know, that's kind of an extreme. And we got to remember too, Kramer's a German brand. European racetracks tend to be in decent shape, whereas there's a lot of American tracks that are pretty rough. So that's kind of the the one minor buyer beware that you have to think about. But for, I think for most people that are going to be running these things in the States, that's never going to be an issue. And again, you have all the adjustability to work through that. Unless you happen to be racing in Alaska, where apparently the racetracks are like terrible, but um, <laughs> it's going to be doing that. So, so presumably with a, with a bike that handles in this way, you find yourself carrying a lot more lean angle than you would on, on say your Ninja 400. How does this bike handle at really, for, for most riders, unknown kind of levels of lean angle? Does, does it handle intuitively or, or you know, are you kind of achieving these lean angles without even trying? And suddenly like, yikes, my elbow just went down. Or, or I mean, how, how does that feel to, to ride something so foreign as this? What's interesting is it the first couple laps, the bike does feel completely alien. And then you just have to remember that motorcycles basically have three main directions that they can go forward, left, and right. Um, now, if you've watched racing enough, you realize that motorcycles can also go up, but that's usually when, when things go south. So, um, <laughs> you know, to kind of answer the point, it just really comes back to that weight and the lack thereof. So I'm not really sure if I was carrying more lean angle than I would on a 400. If you're going around the outside of guys in tight corners, you have to be carrying a lot of lean angle. Yeah, it could have been. Um, that's one of those <laughs> things that I just have no idea how to measure, but <laughs> it all feels relative, right? Like you, okay. you touch your knee on the deck on one bike and, you know, it might be at X lean and then you touch your knee on the deck on another bike and it's at that lean, whatever. But, you know, the the confidence that you have on the edge of the tire, because it, it doesn't have like this supremely small wheelbase, which is part of the reason why, um, you know, the bike is a full-size bike. It has a 55 inch wheelbase. Right. Okay. Uh, which I think is a full inch and change longer than, than a Ninja 400. So, you know, it's working with a lot more, it's got a lot more stability. Um, I would say the main thing that came through, you're on the edge of the tire, and even though the 400 is, you know, making significantly less horsepower, you're, you're constantly being egged on by this bike to get on the gas earlier 
or just straight up not let off. And, you know, that's, that's a big ask in some sections of Barber. Um, through the chicanes, I started getting pretty brave uh, on the exit of Charlotte's Web as well, which is a negative camber corner. And that thing has always sort of creeped me out. Um, fun corner, but a little technical. Um, and then the, the penultimate turn at Barber too. So you, you go over the, the hill, down, down the backside, the right-hander, and then it's a long right-hander into another right-hander. And that's where I, I picked off a couple guys on the outside there, just because, you know, they would start breaking and, you know, setting up that turn. And I would just go, well, I'm fine. I'm just going to kind of mosey on by here. Presumably you can carry a lot more entrance speed. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you got more going for you too. I mean, the front end feel is pretty amazing. Um, the stiffness, uh, the fact that you're running a normal size front tire, uh, you know, 12070, whereas on the Ninja 400s, you're not. Um, smaller tire, less contact bash of the ed edge of the tire. Um, you know, you, you, you got some sharper tools to work with for doing that stuff. And yeah, it's just, this bike is all about handling and that's what comes through. So that does beg the question or ask the question rather, you know, is is the motor enough and yeah it absolutely is i mean unless you were like went to coda or something <laughs> um and even then it would still be cool you'd just get totally smoked on the straightaways and then find your way past all the dudes on 600s sounds like a really interesting machine and i have to say it when you said 16 grand i was surprised that that is really you know very affordable nowadays ludicrous to make it like that but but that is not that's not a crazy price so if you are a, a track day guy a track day regular this is actually a, a really viable option i would say yeah yeah and you know it, it's funny because when you bring up you know the fifteen thousand nine hundred ninety five dollar msrp if i were to say that at an average we'll say you know bike night sort of deal when everyone has you know the 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 market place kind of memorize like this costs this this costs this this displacement costs this whatever they kind of know the general ballpark for what the engine size and then how that reciprocates to um you know the price they'll pay out the door and they'll go oh well 16 grand is oh i can buy you know a, a 1000 for that like a used 1000 or a or last year's jixer or something or whatever okay we're not talking production bikes the kind of the rule of thumb with production bikes, if you're going to track one out or get it race ready, is you take the MSRP and then add 50%. And that's at the bare minimum to get it going. So for my 400, really, I had to add suspension, uh, bodywork, remove everything, um, add some bracing. When it's all said and done, you took like a 50 some odd hundred dollar bike you know, between five and six grand. And then just to get it race ready, you add basically $3,000 worth of equipment to it. Okay, so the rule kind of stands. Now, when you say the $16,000 mark to anyone that's ever converted a, a bike, suddenly everyone just goes, whoa, because that's a pretty low barrier of entry. Because again, most Moto America Junior Cup bikes are probably about that much money anyway, which is ridiculous.
but think about what you're not doing. You are not removing the lights. You are not removing the emissions equipment. You are not reflashing anything. You are not buying an exhaust system. You're not removing ABS. You're not sourcing fairings. You're not adding a bunch of upgrade performance parts to get it even in the ballpark that you want it for your racing endeavor. And at 16 grand, you're like, well, that's looking pretty good. And then if you want to go further, they have the R model, which let me go ahead and find the price of that. Where are you, Mr. R model? Okay. Then they have the R model, which is 23,995, so 24 grand. Same chassis, same engine. You have upgraded wheels to forged aluminum wheels instead of cast. Larger rear wheel, so it uses a 180-55 rear tire instead of the 160-60 that I ran on the S. Also comes with an aim dash instead of the super simple little COSO dash that is on the S model. Uh, and it also comes with dual disc brakes in the front, which to be honest, the, the single M50 that I used on the S and the 320 millimeter rotor, I'm fine, <laughs> like totally good. Uh, so yeah, uh, it's not a big deal. Yeah, interesting. All right, sounds like a sounds like a very interesting um, foray into into a very exclusive niche market, but one that could actually get a bit bigger because it is more affordable. Yeah, and sort of the the last thing in the R, which there is some engine work. They 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 kind of redo the 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 cylinder head and do some beefy stuff to it because R and R always denotes cool and sport bikes. Yeah. But yeah, it's a uh, it, it's it's a it's an easy way to get into racing if you're in yeah it's a niche market of course but at the end of the day some pretty cool stuff so yeah yeah if you're into performance bikes it's definitely an interesting interesting way to go way to consider certainly all right okay hey thanks a lot I uh, appreciate the insight as always uh, very interesting I enjoyed hearing about it yeah sounds good all right thanks cool man. Don't forget, we're still running our Cortec Light Gloves giveaway. Simply go to the Ultimate Motorcycling Instagram or Facebook page and find the Cortec Light Gloves post. All you have to do is like the post and two winners will be selected at random each week. We will message you if you're one of the lucky winners. Please note, this is only open to residents of the USA. In our second segment this week, editor-at-large Neil Bailey chats with Neil Spaulding. Neil is arguably the MotoGP technology writer, and as well as magazines and newspapers, he also writes the technical summaries for the MotoGP season review and moto course. Neil is also the author of the critically acclaimed series of books on MotoGP technology, the officially licensed technical analysis of the class. He was also part of the British Eurosport MotoGP commentary team. So Neil is not just a technical whiz, he also raced in a long club career where he actually won two championships. Ultimately, he went on to run his own team in the British Supersport Championship. He's worked in MotoGP for the last 15 years, and when not at the circuits, Neil runs Sigma Performance, a supplier of racing slipper clutches. 
my dad was a radio uh, engineer, transmission engineer. And I was born when he was based in rugby in Warwickshire in England. Um, I'm the eldest of two. Uh, my father was a Dundonian, so somebody from Dundee in Scotland, who'd been brought up in Glasgow and had uh, not actually, I don't think he actually got called up during the war. He, he was in a, a telecommunications, you know, GPO type job. But as soon as the war was over, he actually got called up into Remy and ended up doing uh, all sorts of much more interesting radio stuff than the telephone stuff he'd been doing before. And he never went back to Scotland. He came down to St. Albans, I think, for the army. Um, and he went up to Rugby, where the post office had their biggest radio station. That was used back in the early 50s for uh, cross-channel, uh, sorry, cross-Atlantic messaging, things like that, but also monitoring the airwaves. And there were three absolutely massive, super tall aerials at this place that in later life I discovered were the ultra-low frequency uh, transmitter aerials that would have told our nuclear missile submarines to launch. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it was an interesting place. It probably <laughs> that rugby would have been one of the first places to disappear and anything kicked off, but there you go. Um, I got to six years old, I think. And then my dad decided to change jobs. And bizarrely, um, just 10 miles from where I live now, there was then a large underground radio station in a place called Ashdown Forest. And that's a nature reserve. But during World War II, uh, the British had decided that it would be quite nice to broadcast into Germany. So they'd worked out where a good place to put it was, somewhere secure, uh, but close enough to the, to the continent to make sure the message got through. They bought a surplus american transmitter it turned out to be the most powerful medium wave transmitter in the world and courtesy of some canadian engineers they dug a large hole in the middle of the ashdown forest and put the transmitter in it and in the 50s it was still going it wasn't doing war work anymore um if you want to know more about it the, the place's nickname was uh, aspidistra and if you go onto wikipedia and look up aspidistra be one section on a transmitter and that's where my dad worked so you were exposed to sort of some pretty interesting technology from a very early age i mean this was quite normal for you to see this very high-end equipment i can remember going to rugby <clears throat> i must have been six and my dad said come on, you need to see this and uh, up in the roof they had a some sort of inductor i'm not quite sure <clears throat> i never I've never got into transmission technology per se, but he walked into this room with a fluorescent light tube in his hand and it lit up. It wasn't wired to anything. It just plain lit up. And you just thought, well, who, you know, what's going on here? <laughs> and it's just the power of the thing, you know? Um, I mean, later on near Cobra, when, when that transmitter was operating, you could walk up on Ashdown Forest and listen to the, World, the BBC World Service news on a fence post. Mm. Um, it's big, 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 big power. Uh, you know, it was designed for use in wartime. They they uh, upset upset the Nazis quite a lot with it. Um, it's called the Black Boomerang, I believe the code name. 
Well, uh, it's very interesting. It's interesting to think today that we've got a you know, big war raging in Europe at the moment, and disinformation is such a key part of that war today. Although they're using social media and Facebook and the internet now, but you know the Brits and the Germans were at this many, many years ago. So this is nothing new in war. Well, yeah, this was this was um, several stages beyond disinformation. This was active weaponry. Mm. Basically, as I understand it, and I'm wide open to being corrected, uh, during the Nazi era, uh, German radio stations, regional radio stations, all took a feed from Berlin, but they were broadcast locally. And when the British, or I assume American, bombers were on the way, the local transmitter in the area the Germans thought they were heading to would be turned off to stop it being used as a homing beacon. But Krober would then pick up the transmissions from the rest of Germany and using this medium wave transmitter, which was not, not only capable of being used in a directional way, which is extremely unusual, but it was also capable of changing frequency. And they would beam back the German transmissions into the area that just lost its signal. And the German listeners would not realize they were now listening to German radio via Crobra, via England. And then we start adding extra messages like German officers, uh, sorry, saboteurs dressed as SS officers shoot on sight and handy helpful hints like that. You know, it was, it was proper weapons grade information. Mm, mm. Uh, I believe we were also uh, at that time mimicking German air traffic control. Mm. So that when the, their fighters were sent up, we would also be giving them instructions in German via, uh, I mean, I think at one point they changed their air traffic controllers. So they were all ladies and we did the same on our German air traffic control. You know, it was just, a, it was proper, proper technological warfare with the gloves off. Um, anyway, look, when, when, when we got there, way after post-World War II, um, there was a massive increase in funding in the early 60s because of uh, basically the, the, the Cuba uh, problem. And they decided that we needed to have a lot more soft power rather than just threaten to throw missiles at each other. So Krober was told it had to expand. Um, and basically they had relay stations uh, one on Cyprus, one on St. Helena, one in Darwin, and one that had started off in Somalia, but because the British had pulled out of Somalia in the early 60s, was being set up on a little, little island in the, the middle of the bottom of the Red Sea called Perim. So Dad turns up in Crobra thinking he's got a job sitting in Crobra, fiddling with a World War II transmitter, um, he, he was particularly good, I understand, at servicing vacuum, vacuum type valves, which is quite a trick. Um, and about a year later, I'm presented with a proposal. And I'm seven years old. And I'm basically said, you can go to boarding school, you can come and live with us on a desert island in the bottom of the Red Sea. Well, you're seven. You don't vote for the boarding school. <laughs> so off we went my brother was five i was seven yes. mum worked in a bank uh, she was going to be our teacher 
Um, the next thing I know, we're, we're walking the streets of Aden and then getting on to Dakota to go and live on the island of Perim. Uh, if you've got access to uh, Google Maps, I think you can find it. Um, uh, you need to use Mayun, M-A-Y-Y-U-N, which is the local village on the island. And, e and even now you can find the foundations of all our homes. So we had a radio station there for a couple of years. Dad spent loads of time building it up. We were guarded by troops. I got a decent education insofar as I, my handwriting was crap then and it's crap now. Um, but I knew the logarithm tables backwards and I was pretty good with the children's encyclopedia. You know, it was, it was an unusual world. We had, we didn't have any shops. There was no social club. Um, we had a Dakota three times a week with food. You learned to swim, you learned to sail, you learned to fish. Um, you learn to look after yourself. Was there any motorcycle influence in that time period? There was one. The boss had a Honda CB72 for help for getting around the island. I think he finally fell off it and broke his leg. But I remember my first ever trip on a motorcycle was on the back of that CB72. Um, I don't actually leave it. remember it making a massive impression. You know, I was more interested in Land Rovers and guns and fishing rods and things mm. uh, but it definitely sowed i mean what i what i think i got from it was a massive increase in mechanical things and in technology yeah clearly i mean you know we had the planes you you three planes a week they they would they didn't just arrive nice and slowly they were they were flown by it was aiden airways they were flown by expert fire pilots they'd come in with a load of people and food on board and they'd still managed to check the, the uh, windsock from below you know this was this was really quite amusing stuff uh, we'd have helicopters coming we'd have the army turning up we'd have the air force turning up with transport planes things called blackburn beverly's which were sort of uh, how can i put it if, if you could imagine uh telly tubby's transport airplane that was pretty much it but yeah it's good fun Good fun. We were there for two years. We came home, went back to school, discovered life is not easy if, if your view of the world is completely different to your school friends. I was going to say, how do you come back and reintegrate with kids that have been playing marbles and conkers and trading soccer cards and you've just been watching all these military planes and helicopters and listening things and radios? Ooh. If you're That's a sports kid, you go to a school full of people who've seen the same thing. Mm. So you integrate. We came back to a civilian school in an East Sussex village. Um, the answer to that is you don't integrate. Um, my life, I can put it, I, I, I was kind of keen to be friends, but I just simply didn't understand the way they thought, you know. I mean, three years later, Dad gets another post. We go out to Cyprus. Mm. And that i mean i mean the first the first trip was fantastic most important i don't regret anything about my childhood it was absolutely fantastic but there were ups and there were problems one of the problems was i came back from perim and within a year i had to take what's called an 11 plus now that's an exam in the uk that decides which level of school you go to afterwards see so the secondary school which is literally as it says second rate mm -hmm. grammar school and I basically didn't pass that exam. 
So I had two years in a secondary school. Then we get carted off to Cyprus. Now that's much better because that was right next door to a massive great British base, forces base. There was a comprehensive school there called St. John's and I went there for three years. And the teachers there were first rate. I mean, the deal for the teachers was a, a good salary, but essentially uh, the, the nickname was Older Shop by the Sea. You know, it was, it was a very good place to be. Um, again, slightly different world. We didn't live with the forces because we were foreign office and dad's work was at a place called Ziggy, which was 20 miles in the wrong direction. So I was a member of the local sailing club. Uh, we got involved. I used to race slot cars, I used to build my own scale extra cars. Got quite good at that. So you were already beginning to build at that stage. I'm, I'm into racing, seriously into racing. I was absolutely useless at any ball sport, but I could right. race and I could race a slot car. Mm, mm. Uh, at the time, I was kind of, I mean, I was trying to think through what sort of vehicles I was interested in back then. I had this real thing about DT250 Yamahas, the first version. There were, I just remember this gold motorcycle with a swoopy exhaust and high bars. I just thought it was super, super cool. But also like things like... Um, Alfa Romeo GTVs and uh, I, I, what was the what's the Mercedes Pagoda tops, the uh, sports cars with a Pagoda top. Just you know, it was cool design, and I really hooked into it. Uh, but we came back. I was sixteen. Came back to a world where all the kids were talking about Monty Python, and we hadn't we hadn't had telly for two for three years. You know, I had not had no clue. Huh? I had not a clue. So same thing. You know, the, quite happy to trundle along with people, but you just felt distant. Then I found motorbikes, and that did change things. Because I found a sport that you can do by yourself. You can enjoy by yourself. You go places. Only for me, I was caught by a thing called the 16er law. So I was the youngest in my class at school. My birthday's in July. And... That meant when they changed the law, that all the kids in school who were already 16 had 250cc motorcycles. But when I finally got to be old enough to have a motorcycle, I could only have a Push Maxi. You so only had 50 until you hit 17. Yes, but I'm going to be two years behind because I was the youngest in the year as well. Right. So, and they already had the 250 license. Yeah. So I just. You know, you can only have a push maxi, a motor, uh, a scooter, a sort of moped. Let's get on with it. And I just basically went exploring on this thing down the back roads everywhere. And I still like exploring back roads. Um, then it was more a question of can I find a road where I can scare myself? You know, even at 30, some of the roads around here will let you do that. Um, but yeah, no, it was interesting. Then I got to 17. And I got myself a Saturday job. I was going. I, I pulled out of school. Uh, the school I'd come back to couldn't do the courses that I'd started in the forces school. Uh, unfortunately, one of those was technical drawing. Um, so that was stillborn at that point. And I ended up at a college doing business studies, not because I was good at it or particularly wanted to do it, but it was there. But mm. I had a 25 Yamaha, and that was the bike I commuted on. And that was what good. Was it? It was an AS3, so it's the two-stroke twin. Oh yeah, I had one. There you go. It was the it was the quality, quality starter bike. It really was. 
Mm. Um, I got mine new. Uh, the The deal I had with my dad, he didn't really want me on powered two wheels unless I was trained. So when I had the Push Maxi, and what he'd done there was he'd made me, he, he, he'd looked around and we costed up uh, mopeds and you could get them for 25, 30 quid. And he looked at them and he just didn't want me on one. So he said, right, you're going to borrow 30 quid off me. You're going to pay me back, but I'm going to buy you a new Push Maxi. So that was the deal. It was a commercial. Well, the Maxi had pedals, not gears, right? It was automatic. It was automatic and it had pedal assist, yeah. Mm. So it would theoretically do 28, but I think with me on board, only downhill. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was, I'm, 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 I'm definitely heavier now than I was then, but I was still quite, quite heavy. Um, and one of the issues for me with something like that, that only does 30 miles an hour, is you are slower than the traffic. And I'm absolutely mm. convinced that you stay alive on a motorbike by being quicker than the traffic, or mm. certainly the option to be. Uh, so I find it quite dangerous. But my dad said, you can have a motorbike, but you've got to train yourself. Uh, so I started doing the homework, and I discovered that the local council did what's called the RAC ACU training scheme, which is where the council would actually turn up with a transit van full of BSA Bantam two-stroke motorbikes and turn up with half <laughs> And they would teach you in the car park. So I had to find six kids who wanted to do it as well, managed to do that. And we had ourselves a training scheme. It was it was absolutely marvellous. And, and the thing I remember about it most, they have an exam at the end. You've got to do slow riding. You know, it's, it's a bit like the off-road tests you do now before you're allowed to go out on the road. But the examiner turned up and he's this older guy and he's got the coolest Kawasaki 500 triple I'd ever seen. In fact, the only Kawasaki 500 triple I'd ever seen. And something I'd never seen before, he'd had a custom-painted crash helmet that matched the paint job on the bike. Mm. Well, this, this was, this is, this is, this is cool, you know? But anyway, got the 125. After seven months, discovered I went absolutely everywhere with the throttle pinned and decided I'd need to do something about that. Went up to London and chopped it in and bought a Yamaha R5F. Now that's the red and black 350 twin of about the same model year. And that was superb because it looked like a 250. Everybody else thought it was a 250 and I had 10 miles an hour on everybody else in the area. For the first time in my life, I had the quick motorcycle. It was nice. Um, and I did something like 30,000 miles on that bike. Apparently you'd passed your test on the 125. I did the test three days after my 17th birthday. Okay. Past first time. I, was, I mean, you better, I mean, that sounds cocky, but I was so determined it was off the scale. I was two, <laughs> I was two years behind my friends. I wasn't going to be two years. Well, you weren't going to be slacking off much longer. <laughs> yeah, absolute dead, dead eye. Mm -hmm. 350 was fun. I started to learn stuff then. Uh, the 125 had oiled up plugs. So I quickly learned about what were then new. They called them uh, NGK V plugs. So I had B9HVs or something in mind. The Didn't they have like a little split? No, these are the ones with a really thin electrode. Okay. Sparks seem to be like water. So if you have a, you know, if you have a hose pipe and it's a big hose pipe, the water's not going anywhere. If you put your finger over the end, it just fires. And mm. that's, sparks pretty much like that. So that mm. the thin electro plug sorted out the um, Yamaha's, how can I put it, propensity to oil up. Um, it was good fun. 
But then the, the R5 used to have rings sticking. I had to work out how to do something about that. And I remember having to decoat the exhausts mm -hmm. with, I thought, was it, what were we using? We we're using something horrible. So you would have to take the exhaust off and pour this stuff into them and pull out the baffles and, and all that. Yeah. And then accidentally have it pour over the lawn, which killed off about six square foot <laughs> lawn, which I took the care and loved, right? <laughs> Large brown patch and taking right. a lot of flack for that for a long time. Um, but yes, so I, I was at Lewis Tech doing business studies. And it, I mean, you had to write a paper there about a business. Uh, it was English. It was a combination of English and geography, I think it was. But anyway, you had to write this this story. And for whatever reason, I decided to do the history of Yamaha. And I wrote to Amsterdam. And they sent me all these papers. And I wrote this big, long thing on Yamaha. Now, I'm, I'm 18 at this point, And I should have kind of understood that there was something there because I clearly enjoyed doing it. Uh, but mm. I wrote about the different platings and the way they change stuff and wrote, handed it in. I think I got reasonable brownie points for it. Um, but then college finished, got a bit of a certificate. Okay, what do we do? Decided to try and become an accountant. Big error. I don't, I might be able to do, might have been able to do that a few years later, but at the time I just wasn't. It was too dry. It was. It was. It just. It was just no interest. So uh, that died a very quick death. Um, by then, I graduated. The bike was the RD. The, the R5 was pretty much worn out. The bank of mum and dad allowed me to borrow. Well, they guaranteed money at the bank. So I was learning that there are problems and there is interest and everything else. But I bought an RD 350B, hmm. silver and black. Um, the last of the 350s, uh, the air-cooled 350s. And it was a really sweet bike because the UK had had a different bike to America. We, the America has all been, always been a six-speed gearbox. But in UK, for some really weird reason, they'd blanked off six gear and up the gearing. So we only had a five-speed gearbox. But the B had the six-speed reinstated, only it was a closer ratio than the American one. It was six speeds spread over the original range of first to fifth. So this thing was really quick. And what I liked about it was it looked absolutely normal. It looked really conservative. It didn't make a lot of noise. And the noise it did make, I thought, was fantastic. It was a lovely, lovely sort of bloop, 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 bloop noise when you block the throttle. But it went like a missile. I mean, mm. it was superb. Um, yeah, had... Two years of that, and that did another 30,000 miles. Crashed it a few times, unfortunately. I got a bit bit ahead of myself. My ambition outweighed my talent, I think is the expression. Um, knocked myself out at one place. Learned very quickly that you don't knock yourself out and not go get checked. Doctor was furious because I, I told the ambulance just to go away. Then ended up at the doctor's in the afternoon complaining of headaches. So... Uh, don't do that, kids. Go and go and go and see a doctor straight away. Um, so what you're trying to say is, if you crash your RD350 and bonk your head, you better go to the doctor. Well, it, I think the, the the critical difference is, is if the helmet looks like it, helmet looks like it's been smashed up, or you've lost consciousness. 
go and see the doctor. <laughs> and or. <laughs> and or. Please. If you lose consciousness, it's time to get your bumps checked. Um, I've had Great friends. advice. Great advice. Well, I've had friends who haven't made it after the things like that since mm. then. So you kind of learn your lessons and realise that you've used up one of your lives or something. But yeah, so we by then I'm working out and I'm not cut out to be an accountant. Uh, the banks were offering more money, so I joined Lloyd's Bank, which was fine, but it was local in Tunbridge Wells. And we are 40 miles from London, one of the biggest financial centres in the world. And it took me a while. I'm, I'm, I'm not quick on the uptake sometimes. Really, I'm not. Um, took me a while to work out that if you're that close to a major world centre, it's a good idea to go and work there. Um, so, you know, in the meantime, I'm learning how the world goes around. I had a very good friend, a chap called Michael Quaif. His dad ran a gearbox factory, uh, Quaif Engineering. Um, they made all the five-speed gearboxes for the racing tri triumphs, things like that. And Norton, right? You could put one of those in your Norton too, right? Yeah, yeah. Same people. Um, yeah. I hooked up with him and some friends, and he was racing rallycross in Chevettes, Blydenstein Chevettes, so big two-point-three liter engines and things like that. And you go along and you change the wheels, and then you use the learn to use a video camera and take some film. And I just got into the racing thing. But he'd done motorcycle racing before, and for whatever reason, I thought, I'd like to try this motorcycle racing. And I entered a race meeting up at Silverstone. Now, it, by then, sorry, I should roll back a touch here. While in the bank, I had this 350 Yamaha, fantastic. A friend of mine had a Triumph Trident. I had a few rides on it, I thought, this is, thing's amazing. And I just did not understand the difference between British and Japanese motorcycles. All I knew was this glorious 750 triple. It's fantastic. So a lad down the road from me had a Triumph T160. He wasn't getting on with it. I said, well, I'll buy it off you. So I sold my Yamaha and bought this Triumph. And very quickly sort of worked out I might have made a bit of an error. Uh, the Yamaha was doing, I don't know, 250 miles to a pint of two-stroke. You just kept putting it into the tank. The Trident was doing less than that as a four-stroke, which I just decided was not good. Um, and it, 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 this, the engine bit me quite a few times. It was impossible to stop it leaking oil. It was impossible to stop the head gasket and the rocker box gaskets pulling in. Um, I finally, through some connections, had the engine rebuilt by uh, a chap who worked with Les Williams. Um, and after that, we had a year of real reliability. Um, and it's glorious noise. I, I learned about exhaust pipes. Um, we had a three into one made. It made three times as much noise and lost one third of the power. <laughs> it, you know, it, it was not, this was not good. Uh, <laughs> then, then I discovered a chap called Norman Hyde who was making a three into one. I was going to say, did you, yeah, Norman Hyde made three into ones for those things, didn't he? Yeah. And, and he made good ones. And it was the oh, first time, you know, I'm starting to learn mechanical stuff now. I've, I'm, yeah. I've used to be quite good at taking the cylinder heads off the Yamaha two strokes to decoke them. But the triple was a whole new game of, ooh, yeah, it's a problem. But I learned about exhausts. I learned about carburetion. I 
changed the valve springs and valves and got it wrong, which is why it had to go to Les Williams to be rebuilt because I accidentally snagged a, a valve spring retainer and the spring rate had gone through the roof and worn out the cam. So that was a very expensive lesson. Uh, but we got the bike back together. It ran perfectly for a year. And I just decided at the end that this was getting too much trouble. About the same time, another friend of mine started the Triumph Rocket 3 and was it uh, Triumph, Triumph Trident and Rocket 3 Owners Club. Um, I'd given him a few lifts to work and stuff and he liked the noise. He bought one himself. He turned up at the house and said, I'm just starting this club. Do you want to remember number two? And I just didn't have it in my heart to tell him that I was about to sell the bike. So I said, look, okay. I just, I just don't want to be member member number two of a three-cylinder motorcycle club. Can I be member number three? <laughs> and he's, okay. Um, I still yeah. am member number three of that club. Nice. Um, but anyway, it was it was great fun. But Suzuki GS one thousands were around then, and I found somewhere up in Manchester that was selling them cheap. And all I had to do was sell my bike, and I couldn't sell it. And bless them, the local motorcycle shop had somebody who wanted to buy mine. So we just did a deal. I got out of it. Um, but the GS... This would, been, this would have been about 1978? No, this is... I had what's called the E, so it's the second year GS1000. Oh, I think it was 79. Okay, okay. Um, certainly I had it because in 1980, I'm working for Lloyds Bank. I've got the GS1000. I'm still, I, I still have not passed my car test, so I'm 24. Pardons, do everything on a motorcycle person. Mm -hmm. uh, working in a bank, and believe me, those two things don't naturally work together. Banking and motorcycles. <laughs> well, yeah, you turn up at the bank. You're supposed to wear a suit and look good and everything else, and be neat and tidy. That's actually not easy in sub-zero temperatures when you're riding 20 miles in the in the morning. No. Uh, so you, you but you i learned how to deal with it um but on this bike i'm starting to get a bit quick and we we, we took a holiday my father had been sent out to cyprus again so my brother and i are living in the house by ourselves so i've now learned to cook make beds uh i'd like to say clean the house but that, not an awful lot of that happened um And I just started thinking, okay, this bike's, you know, it would wobble. I could ride it pretty quick everywhere. We saved up our money. And instead of going to see our parents in Cyprus, we went to California for three-week holiday. We were sleeping in a car. We went to the Champion Spark Plug 200 because um, I was determined to see this Laguna Seca place. So I've been reading American motorcycle magazines for the previous 10 years. And, you know, there's no way I was not going there. Uh, it was mm. I mean, we, we saw Spencer, Lawson, Aldana. Don't think Rainey was around then, or not at that level. But that was all the high bar superbike racing. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I got into race, watching racing. I mean, I'd been to see the transatlantic and all that sort of stuff, because we're only 20 miles from Brands Hatch. So if you go somewhere like that, you go there. Um, but Laguna Seca was something else. And while I was there, I learned about decent shock absorbers, and I took home with me a pair of S&W rear shocks for this GS1000. And they were 
they were quite revolutionary at the time. I mean, we were used, you know, if you wanted aftermarket shocks in the UK, then you bought Girlings, which were mm. stiff and didn't move. Um, S&Ws were designed to move. They were designed to have some top out. They were like modern day, you know, they were the first of the modern day uh, gas pressurized shocks. And it transformed the Suzuki. It was absolutely amazing. So I thought, okay, we, we need to, I'd like to try this racing lark a bit more. So I went to Brands Hatch and did the racing school, run by a chap called Jeff Crookbane. And you spent your money, and he gave you this knackered old 400 Honda with clip-on bars and a big cafe racer fuel tank. And you go off paddock bend, all tucked in, with your chin on the tank, and get to the bottom of paddock bend when the road suddenly went back up again and the fuel tank will come up and smack you in the chin. So you learn to sit up a bit higher. I mean, it really was quite painful. The only thing that really made my first couple of sessions there worthwhile was a chap called Surtees turned up. He'd retired from racing cars. He'd shut down his Formula One thing and he just wanted to play with motorbikes. And he had this old 500 Vincent and he was just going round and round. Uh, while we were out on track, we'd be all wobbling around at one minute, 10 seconds. And this old, you know, it was then 30 year old Vincent with a 60, 65 year old man on it, was clipping around in 56s, 57s. Just amazing. It was just superb. Um, and you just, you started to get a twinkling of, the, the, you know, this, this game is slightly different to what I think it is. Anyway, yeah. went to some races, decided the GS1000 was too old. Big mistake. It would have been the perfect bike. And I bought a CB900 uh, Honda, CB900F decided I was going to go racing and I got a spare tank and painted it up the seat different seat painted you know it was all modified I still didn't have a car so if I was going to race I had to ride the bike to the racetrack there's another track down near Dover called Lydon it's one mile long it's tiny but you could turn up there and there's another another club that did a thing called time trials so we'd go ride round for an hour. And if you did a certain number of laps, I think it was like 58, you got a first class trophy. If you did 59, you got, sorry, no, 58 was first, 59 was second, 60. Didn't. And I can remember protesting, I can't do those speeds, you know, and they said, you get there. And I just kept doing it. And you'd, you'd have a great day. You'd do three, you'd do two hours flat out around this racetrack against the clock then ride home. I did not have a plan B. If I'd crashed, we were going to be in deep, deep doo-doos because that not only would have been no going home, but it would also be no going to no work. Going to work. You know, and I, I, I mean, to get ready for this, I'd come home from work. I'd be home at five o'clock and I'd take the wheels off. I'd take the tires off. I'd put sticky tires on, pump it up, balance it all out in front of my house. And, and that's the other thing. If you work in a bank, or you if you work in a bank, then you got help with a mortgage. If you didn't take the help with the mortgage, you weren't being paid enough. So I'm house rich and motorcycle and vehicle poor. All my friends the other way around. You know, I've got a house, but I actually had very little else. Um, but yeah, we did that for three or four years. I, I, I mean, it took me years to lose my novice jacket because I just didn't, I just couldn't strap the money together. Um, but then it started getting serious and I started thinking I need to do this. 
bit harder. The bank started allowing people to work or wanted people to work on Saturdays. I presented the personnel manager with a map of my racing proposed racing dates and said, I'll race, I'll work every other day. And that's what ended up, I ended up earning the money. And about then you started to think, you know, I'm not, I can't, I'm not sure I can make this work. I tried to get jobs in a couple of other places. I applied to the Air Force, broke my leg on their assault course. That wasn't good. Um, actually, that just to put the time in place, I did my leg in um, at, Biggin, at Biggin Hill at the officer's selection place. And I got carted off to the local hospital. They operated and I basically put my kneecap up, up near my groin, which was really not nice. Uh, they put me all back together and put me in a full length plaster cast. And I discharged myself on the, I, I did that on the Wednesday, I discharged myself on the Friday because the Saturday and Sunday were the, were the um, Grand Prix races at Silverstone. So we went up to Silverstone in a minute. We spent Saturday taking the front seat out of a mini so I could get in and sit on the back seat. And we went up and watched Kenny Roberts and Barry Sheen banging fairings at Silverstone. So that I think it's probably 85, I don't know, something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and I remember invading the track on crutches at the end. Everybody went out on the track and I'm thinking, I'm not 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 doing this, so I'm not sure I can get my my leg over the uh, <laughs> over the over the barriers. Yeah, it was good fun. But we ended up thinking, okay, I want to do more racing. I'm racing the CB900. I've started to go to bigger circuits and do other club races. And I've decided I need to pass a car test. I bought a Volkswagen Beetle, 1200, six volt. A good education, but awful vehicle. I couldn't make it, it wouldn't start on the electric starter. Even with a fresh battery and a full charge, it wasn't interested. So I would start it by putting my shoulder against the driver's doorpost, wearing a suit at the end of the day in the bank, pushing it across the car park and then just hopping in and slamming it into first gear. Then you could go home because it started. <laughs> and that would tow a motorcycle trailer, uh, again, made of bits. Uh, I didn't have any spare wheels, didn't have any wets. Yeah, I'm, you know, basically I was addicted but skint. Right. And, and not, and unfortunately, sensible. Um... I was later accused by another good friend of mine of racing like a bank manager. And I had to point out that that's what I was, <laughs> you know, I mean, you manage risk. You, I'm, I wasn't about to throw it into the weeds if I couldn't get home any other way. Right, right, right. But yeah, it's good fun. Um, Race like a bank manager. There you go. Yeah, that was Paul Smart said that to me. Barry Sheen's uh, brother-in-law uh, and, 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 and serial fast guy. Um, but anyway, we, I decided I need to earn more money. I, bought, I chopped in this, this, the Honda and bought a Suzuki Katana. And I bought that thinking that's the weapon to have, just as everybody else got rid of their Katanas and bought GPZ-900s. Oh, that was the bike when it came out, wasn't it? It was, and I just didn't have that money. Mm -hmm. uh, I decided that was the point at which the little bomb went off in my head and thought, this isn't going anywhere. I need to move to make money to go race motorbikes. So a friend of mine worked up in London, had a chat. He said, we've got a place actually you, you could work in. They need, they need someone right now. So I applied. Six weeks later, they hadn't 
I went out and interviewed. Six weeks later, I hadn't got the job. I'm fairly sure I was third or fourth choice. But I phoned them up. And obviously, first, first, second and third choices had said no. And they said, you want a job? I said, okay. Went up to London. Um, went out on the base of that, got myself a big loan. Bought an FZ 750. Mm. FZ was marvelous, but it was clear it wasn't the suspension wasn't quite right. It, it worked best when it was soft, but if it was soft, it grounded. I, I believe mm. in it, people fit different linkages to them, but it was a fantastic motorcycle. Then another friend said, Why don't you do this Bantam Club Championship? They've got a 1300 championship. And I thought, Okay, Lyddon, I'll go and have a go. go. I went down there, there, there was only one other person in the class. I uh, did two races with them and essentially won the championship on the basis nobody else turned up. <laughs> it gave me a fairly pithy view of people who call themselves champions, you know. It, it really counts. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, in motorcycle racing, there is only one champion, and that's the motor that's the MotoGP champion. Everybody else is a is a they only won because the MotoGP guys were doing MotoGP things. Um, but anyway, we we did that. Getting used to banking in london though the very first deal i was involved in involved more money than all of the money that my previous little lloyd's bank had lent just one deal i commented on this to someone they said well just go read the telephone directory you'll get used to the numbers you know it was just crazy so the buzz from that kind of eliminated the need for the racing so incredibly, within the space of a year and a half, I'd gone from desperate for money to race to actually discovering I don't need racing to get a buzz. Mm. The job was good enough. But flash forward four or five years, I've bought another house, a complete and utter wreck, um, which I still own. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, how's life going, everything else. And then we had a recession in this country, a very bad one. Uh, we had just been taken over. We'd been given a load more money to lend. We had lent the money, probably not as intelligently as you would if you weren't under the orders to get the money out there quickly. And it was all going horribly wrong. So I got drafted into the recovery, what they call the recoveries and intensive care division, i.e. the people who were charged with get, either getting the money back or making the loan safe. And I had five years of that. That that was definitely not a low stress environment. Well, um, did you have a bike during that time period? Road bikes, yes. I had a uh, the FZ had gone. Yep. Uh, um, I bought an FZ thousand, uh, which was stolen in Amsterdam when I was coming back from the Dutch TT. Mm. Three we had three bikes in Amsterdam. Two went missing. Uh, we were riding around Amsterdam, three up on a on the remaining FJ eleven hundred, looking for a police station. Uh, in the end, um, we worked on the basis of three up w would mean that at least the police would find us if we kept riding long enough. We're not happy. Managed to get home from that, uh, and I bought a VF. V, uh, let's get it right. A VFR seven fifty F. So a postman Pat red red seat V four, lovely thing. Uh, revelation the fz had been quick and i thought it was fantastic the fz thousand was stupidly quick but you only really felt like you were getting movement 
and fun when you're doing 120 on a country lane. This was not conducive to staying alive very long. The VFR sounded great, felt great. With Michelin radials on, it wobbled, but it wobbled nicely. It was that sort of motorbike. You, you got to 90 miles an hour and you're having a blast. It was really, really good fun. Probably one of the best motorbikes I've ever owned. Um, yeah, it was great. But yes, um, stayed with the bank, got into the bad debt recovery department, bought myself, sold the VFR, and for some reason best known to the gods, I bought myself a Ducati 907 injection Paso, which was trouble from day one. Didn't do this, it didn't do that, but it sounded glorious. I've got some Conti exhaust pipes for it. It was great. Mm. But about the same time, the bad, the bad debt recovery department thing's doing my head in. And I, I, this is what I've done all the way through my life. When things get heavy or crazy, I go back to motorbikes or specifically racing. So I started looking around thinking, what are we going to do? And there's an article in Performance Bikes magazine about a chap who raced a standard framed SRX 600 in this Sound of Singles class. Sounds good. Went and went found one secondhand, bought it off a dispatch rider. It had about 35,000 miles on it, which is not the right way to buy a motorcycle that you're going to race, but I hadn't really got my head around that. Um, and and, our, and Motorcyclist magazine had uh, recently run an article about d developing one of these for racing. Well, okay, what do they do? Long, better shocks, they have a 620 piston, a Carrillo rod, Yoshimura cam, Cayenne carburetors. And I basically just went, okay, that's what we're going to do. And we built one up. A friend of mine, Martin Sweet, who ran a business called Slipstream Motorcycles at the time, said he'd build the engine. So it comes apart. Every All the bearings were changed. Rod went in, piston went in, bore job, cam, bit of a bit of a gas flow, carburetors on. And, and we went up to a chap called Pete Gibson. He used to make really tremendous expansion pipes and got him to make some pipes for the four stroke and they were basically they were superb i used them on three different bikes but we we took this thing from 35 horsepower to about 63 64 um and it was great short little tracks it was high bars standard seating position you get my knee on the deck it was absolutely superb i mean the first first year i didn't get my knee on the deck but second year superb then i made a big mistake thought okay if we can do this with a road chassis and by then I've got the car and I've got a trailer and, you know, uh, I got a garage. Let's think about a race chassis. And I bought a TIGCRAFT. Now they were basically uh, twin beam chassis that I think the jig had started off as a TZR250 or something. And you shoehorned this engine into it. It had oil, oil in the frame, which really, really in retrospect was not a good idea because Big singles vibrate, and when big singles vibrate and expand when they get hot, they crack the frame. That's fine and dandy. It's a structural issue, unless the frame is also your oil tank. Mm. So we got quite used to racing around with oil coming out of everything. But yeah, stuck with that for a few years. Uh, um, it, 
it was again it was hard work um i finally won a club championship with against a few more people uh but that time again everybody that i thought of as being good had gone off to race in the nationals i wasn't good enough to so i stayed behind and i was the fastest person left and again yeah very nice i can call myself a club champion but actually does it mean anything to me no because all the good guys had left but around about the same time um was that 93 94 i mm. started taking there's a there was a ducati enthusiast club meeting at assen so we would get the bikes and we'd entered that and there's big long races on the assen track which were just fantastic uh i've got more crashes there than everywhere else in my career because i actually for whatever reason decided it was a place to really 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 try and i started to work out that the reason sound of singles wasn't expanding was there was nowhere bigger than that there was no Grand Prix class, there was no international class. And on a bit of a whim, whim, World Superbikes came to Brands Hatch in 1995. And uh, I trundled along and managed to persuade the nice receptionist lady that I would should have a word with a bloke called Maurizio Flamini. And he was boss of World Superbike. So I get into this, he's got this nice office in a, in a, in a truck, in a, in a um, bus in the paddock get in there I sat down and said you know you want to run singles it would be a real great addition to the package I said you you know it's called super mono and he turned around and he said I think we'll do this at least it has super in the title you know so you have super bike super sport and super mono all of a sudden blimey okay but then I had the job if we were going to get it of getting a field together so we went to Holland again to the Dutch club they were fantastic they let us put out pr for this new series even though it would have damaged their race uh, much massive respect for that and uh, we started in 90 96 in misano where was pierre's ducati supermono at that point um, uh it was out it was out. going extremely quickly um people uh there's a chap called alan carter rode one Alan Cathcart rode one. Cathcart was right. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were the tool, but you know, I didn't. I wasn't anywhere near that league. Uh, mm. I got this Yamaha engine thing, uh, basically based on my original SRX, but on a, in a second generation Tigraph chassis. This time made out of steel, on the basis that was less likely to crack. Uh, but we got an external flywheel on it. We had got a billet cylinder on it. We got the thing out to 680 cc's. We got it up to 73 brake. Wow. Uh, we've gone through two generations of carburetor. We started off with hay in 33s. We're up to 37s. I think the 35s would have actually been best in the end. But yeah, it was good. It was a good machine. Uh, it took a long, long time for me to learn how to make it work. And it absolutely underscored to me that it was a bunch of stuff I did not know. You know, we were, we were getting places, we were making it work by luck, not by judgment. Hmm. Um, I, I wish, I wish I had known then a quarter of what I know now. You know, it was so, so obvious I was floundering around. Anyway, we're running this series. I turned up for the first race. We got passes that wouldn't get us out of the paddock. 
we were stuck. Um, we had two half hour practices, not three half hour practices like all the other classes. So there are my new bike, mechanic, rider, and series organizer all in one thinking, what the hell do I do now? And I went and saw the uh, race organizer. They finally agreed to modify the passes. So the 30 bikes that I'd managed to persuade to go could actually go and watch a race or get to the tire truck. Um, we finally got an extra 15 minutes practice in the morning. I had to use the F word several times in a discussion with a translator with the insistence that the words be translated perfectly but <laughs> it, it was um let's put it this way it was character forming because i had 30 30 riders there so i had over 120 130 people all basically stuck in a paddock where the organizers weren't giving us room to go anywhere you know it was it was not good but after that it got a lot better um we did a first year where i tried to ride i basically gave up trying to ride at the end of the first year it, it it just wasn't you couldn't do any one of the jobs right and I've, it was my first education in do one thing right rather than three things badly second year i did commentary pr uh third year uh, stuck my head in the scrutineering bay and started seeing works hondas in parts being checked and stuff amazing things you started to again underlined what you didn't know what they were doing you know, you looked at the shapes of the inlet throttle bodies. Uh, they had um, inlet trumpets that were surfaced like a golf ball, little hexagonal dimples in them and stuff. And you're thinking, hang on a minute, this is this is stuff I'm not seeing anywhere. You know, it's amazing. Um, and then at the end of the well, at the, at the, halfway through the second year, again, I've worked out that the thing's not professional enough. Um, and about the same point, the bank I'm working in uh, is taken over by another bank, um, or that rather our parent company was taken over by another bank. The bank that did the buying was my old employer's Lloyds Bank. And they took one look at the culture of Hill Samuel, the merchant bank I was in, said, we don't want you, we're gonna shut you down. So I was made redundant uh, halfway through the second year of a three year uh, Super Mono Championship. Or in the three years I ran the Super Mono Championship, the, the, halfway through the thing, I got made redundant. And I did what all sensible middle-aged bank managers should do. As soon as I got my redundancy money, before I got another job, I went and bought a Ducati Super Mono with the redundancy money. Excellent. You just Great choice. <laughs> well, it was the dream, you know. That's what I want. Um, I'd actually, I'd actually been, I'd been to Japan to try and see if what this, this super mono scene was like out there. I'd gone to Sugo, the final round of the World Superbike Series. Um, spent an absolute fortune that I hadn't intended to spend. Uh, I remember negotiating a cheap taxi ride to the circuit to Sugo with a taxi driver. And he, we, he agreed a price and he gets halfway to the circuit in the middle, middle of absolutely nowhere, then stops and said, right, that's as far as your money's got you. And you're thinking, hang on a minute. <laughs> what do we do now? Anyway, <laughs> just, yeah. Um, end result, friend at the racetrack has said there's a super mono for sale in Germany. Uh, 
I said I'm interested. They didn't come up often. They were rare then. Mm. Um, we phoned the bloke from the circuit. He gave him my credit card number. He took a 10p deposit to make sure the card worked. I changed my flights home, so I went to Frankfurt. I phoned up another friend and got him to drive to Germany. And we went and collected this bike. I insisted it was started, which is probably the wrong thing to do, but I kind of needed to know all the internals are there. Um, and we took it home. And uh, it sat there for a while. I'm thinking, what am I going to do with this? Now, bear in mind that this time I'm also changing jobs. I'm also uh, trying to work out essentially what to do with the series because it's becoming obvious that Super Mono, which was a prototype four-stroke series, inside a production series was politically difficult for a lot of people. I suspect that's why Mr. Flamini was kind enough to let us do it, to be fair. Um, and I'm thinking, okay, where do we go for this? And I decided that I was going to try and give my own series a boot and show people how, how you could do it. So we took the Super Mono apart. Um, I got hold of some special tools. Uh, there was a mechanic working for my friend Martin Sweet, a chap called Bruce Moss. Now, he was one of Kenny Roberts' engine builders. He'd married an English lady, come over here, and the, the marriage had unfortunately rather fallen apart. And he was just looking for a job with no stress. So uh, he's working at the local bike shop. I said to him, are you interested in building me a Super Mono? And between the two of us, we basically took this Mono apart. Uh, worked out what needed to be done. I mean, we I bought it secondhand. It had never done anything. It had sat next to somebody's fax machine for five years, four years. Um, but we took it apart, worked out that all the technology inside was 1993 Ducati Superbike. So we thought, well, it'd be a good place to start would be 1997 Ducati Superbike. We managed to get hold of the, the, the improved inlet cam we worked out that the suspension was quite old, even though it had never turned a wheel. And I decided in the middle of all this that I wanted to take it to Daytona. Now, my hero, when I read all those American magazines back in the 70s, my hero was a bloke called Cook Nielsen. And he bought a bevel drive 750 Ducati and with one of the other editors on their magazine, uh, documented how they tuned it up, got it all right gone to Daytona and they won an American superbike race. And I just thought this was fantastic. You know, this was proper privateers. And I thought, well, I'm sitting here, I've got a Ducati. I'm going to do the same. I'm going to take it to Daytona. But I did actually work out that I probably wasn't made up to be the rider. Hadn't raced for two and a half years. So I phoned up a friend, Jonathan Cornwell. He's now working in Moto America. He's a crew chief, but back then he was Carl Fogarty's suspension technician. I got to know them through the superbike thing. And I knew he went to Daytona every year for a, for a busman's holiday. You know, he was going to race all year, but he, he went down there with the wife and he raced a CBR 600 and a few other things. And I said, look, if I turn up with a Ducati Super Mono for the armor races, will you ride it? Yeah. He said, uh, do you need any help with it? I said, well, We've got some very old suspension. So he went to work and he basically sent me revised valving for the forks, 
because the mono has Olin suspension both ends and a revised rear shock, all the latest technology. We screwed it together, stuck it in a box, learned how to make out a carne, and I flew to America with a Super Mono. Um, got there a couple of days early. Now, they were running a club series, and I don't... Do you know the clubs that are run now? Not really, no. Okay, then there was a thing called... I think it's short, it's called CCS or something. Oh, CCS, yeah, they were in Florida. I remember yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. They were, and the way it worked at Daytona Speed Week was CCS were first, club racing... Then they cleared off and Armour ran for two days, the historic racing. Then they cleared off and AMA came in. And yes. I, yeah. I arranged for the bike to be delivered to the circuit in a box. We had built the world's smallest box for a racing motorcycle. So the front wheel's out. It's got my leathers in and the tools and some spares. Um, I really can't believe we got away with this. It was amazing. And I ended up in a garage with Cornwell and his Canadian friends, I had to build the bike up. And the bike at this point had still had not turned a wheel. We'd done some dyno testing, but we needed to get it to, you know, actually go and run in suspension and things like that. So I entered the CCS race myself. Now I hadn't raced on a racetrack for two and a half years. And all I can remember is riding out, riding around the bottom of the banking on the flat bit, sort of looking up at the banking, which is I think 43 degrees and thinking, who are these blithering idiots charging around 30, 40 foot above me, flat out? And, and, and four laps later, you're up there. Seems perfectly natural. And you're looking up to see where you're going. It was totally bizarre. I remember coming wailing into turn one and completely misunderstanding just how fast you're going if you're coming down a 43 degree and you're going to hit the brakes. You, 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 the brakes don't work quite as well as you want them to, you know? It was, it was a great entered a race, but it, uh, yeah, in the end, I decided not to race because um, we were there to win the, the, the singles race with armor. Um, in the pre run to this, we'd had some fun. We built the bike. Bruce, he's a New Yorker. He knew Farachi. He phoned up Farachi and said, How much power does this thing supposed to make? And Farachi had said, 64 65 horsepower so we built it up and i'd taken it to the local diner jet and we stuck it on the diner jet and we'd given it half an hour to sort of run in and then we would given it a few full power runs and we're looking at 70 horsepower thinking mm -hmm. we're better than we think we are you know this is amazing um went home sat down thought about what we we're going to do and ducatis of that generation you change the cam timing by changing offset woodruff keys so if you knew you Cam timing was correct. You could theoretically undo the belt, take the pulley off, put a woodruff key on, and move it two degrees or four degrees. They're two degree jumps. And I thought, okay, what we need, what we need here is drive. You know, because what I'd seen in Super Mono was everybody revving the watts it's off them, and that being a problem. So I needed to generate some drive from somewhere. And we put this thing on the dyno. We got 70. Well, I'm after 72, 73. If you don't ask, you don't get. Went back to the dyno, had all the keys ready to change. I thought, we'll run it up first. They put a flat out run into it, 65 horsepower. Okay, we've lost five. What's going on here? Sat down, looked at the bike. Now, when we'd taken it up the first time, we'd forgotten to fit the connectors that linked the air intake with the airbox. 
and that seemingly generated this five horsepower. Now those connectors were there to duct air from a, a vent in the front into the airbox, and according to everything I'd ever read, that'd be about three percent additional pressure. Well, sixty horsepower, three percent additional pressure, maybe two horsepower. So we've got five, but if I put the air conveyors on, if I'm lucky and we go fast, I can get two back. So I decided I'm leaving them off. And I sat and thought about it and thought, well, if that's getting more air in and we're making more power and the mixture's fine, let's see what happens. So we took the airbox top off and we got 72 horsepower. Okay. So I went home, thought about it some more, and we cut a letterbox in the airbox top. And that gave us more air, still more air in. And it gave us a flat plate. It still gave us the top of the airbox for uh, basically if you if you have a flat plate six inches away from an air intake, you get a, a, a flat, a, a, a returned wave. You get a harmonic between the air intake and the flat plate. Uh, and that seemed to give us more mid range. And that's what we were after. So by the time we went to Daytona, we're looking at a 70 to 72 horsepower bike with some breathing mods. We'd worked out the reason for the mixture being fine was that Ducati had built the air pressure sensor into the airbox. So in the standard setting, when it ran out of air because it wasn't getting enough, it just leaned it out. So it always our carburetted perfectly. But anyway, we've got ourselves a really good mid-range, good supermono. Took it to Daytona. I'll never forget the day that John Cornwell took his leathers out of the bag. You have never seen a set of leathers more destroyed than the pairs he pulled out. And I just looked at this and thought, big mistake. I've, flipped, I've flown 3,000 miles. I've slapped down an awful lot of money that is, is, is pretty important to my continued functioning. And this man's turned up a set of leathers that tells me that he crashes things. Um, he, he did actually, have, he, he really did have a reputation of smashing things up. I think he destroyed a works Ducati later on. He was given a ride. It just all went wrong. He's an amazing bloke. Absolutely amazing bloke. Great rider. He was multiple Canadian 250 champion. Multiple Canadian dirt track champion. And when he went out on the mono, there was a couple of things he wanted to change. But he knew Daytona. He knew that you don't ride it in a big swooping curve. You go up and you dive down. You go up and you dive down. Uh, he was up against Rodney O'Connor, New Zealand champion. And uh, what was the name of the Harley rider who died in New Zealand? Really, really, really good rider. Cal Rayborn. His son Rayborn. was out in this race, Cal Rayborn III. And he was on another super mono. And somehow, Cornwell kept it together. And it was a one, two, three for monos. Super Mono Ducatis, uh, but my one was the first one. And it's, yeah, my God, he, he rode it. He really did. Um, and he gave it back to me and he says, feeling kind of vibey. Well, we'd been experimenting. I was really nervous about having other people on one of my motorbikes, something I'd never done before. Mm. And I, was particularly, I wanted people to go fast, but I didn't want them to wreck the bike. And we, I knew about slipper clutches from World Superbike, and we got hold of a Ducati slipper clutch and put it on the mono. It didn't fit, so we'd modified it. But where we'd modified it, we hadn't quite done enough, and the back of the clutch was touching the inside of the basket, 
and it had generated enough heat to melt the nylon or, or weaken the nylon bush that held the ball bearings apart on the gearbox shaft. It was a ball bearing with a, a brown plastic clip that held the balls in place and this had come out. Uh, so anyway, we decided we won one race, we're going to quit while we're ahead. We could have gone on and run the AMA in um, a series they had, I think Sounds of Thunder or something it's called. We could have gone up against the Buells. Our lap times would have meant we would have been with the leading Buells. Would have been fantastic, but I just I quit while I was ahead, basically. Um, and we entered that bike in three more races, four more races. We had we we actually phoned up Rodney O'Connor in New Zealand, who had beaten us at Daytona. Said, "Do you want to ride the bike at Brands?" He flew all the way around the world, crashed it unfortunately, but we learned a ton more. We had a chap called. Uh, Callum Ramsey, who was reigning British 250 champion on it at, Day at Donington. We lapped everybody up to third place. Mm. We built a missile. Uh, sort of things. I mean, I'd used every contact I knew. The Super Mono comes with a four inch rear rim. The current, the, the 250 tires at the time were designed for four and a half. Or was it? No, it came with a four and a half, and the 250 tires were designed for a five. And I got hold of Marcosini and with the help of a friend, uh, persuaded them to make a Ducati Supermono rear wheel that looked exactly like a standard one that was half inch wider. We could put the latest 250 tires on it. And more to the point, Bruce had worked out that the Supermono was really nice to tires, so we could put 250 qualifying tires on it. So we had these, we were the only people at the track with these tires. It was just, the thing was a missile. Amazing. Where's that bike now? I sold it to um, a film director who has unfortunately now passed away. What was his name? Um, what was his name? Jack Silverman. Jack Silverman bought it. I next saw that motorcycle. After we sold it, I went 10 years later to AMA Vintage Days at Mid-Ohio, and they had a tent, a Ducati tent there. And that was your bike? My bike was the, one of the Gate Guardians, complete with the last scrutineering stickers. I couldn't believe it, you know. Um, and I was there, and Cook Nielsen was there with his bike, and Paul Smart was there. He, he, he actually turned up with me. Um, it you, you, you sat there and thought, I'm, you know, what am I smoking? This is wonderful. Absolutely wonderful, wonderful weekend. Um, but yes, so we we tried racing in the, the, the Supermono. I mean, once I'd, I, I sold it because I basically worked out that my original plan was to keep it and ride it. Then I worked out that keeping it and riding it was expensive. And I, it, it would be in something like all of my savings and, and change. I could actually pay a chunk of mortgage off if I sold it. So I sat down and thought, okay, it's gonna to have to go. I had the phone call from Dallas. Uh, do you wanna do you wanna sell it? Uh, well, it depends on the number. And we made a reasonably healthy profit on selling it, I have to say. Um, didn't want it to go. But there was a point when you're collecting a motorcycle and you, you know, my plan was to put it in a dining room. It was worth twice what the dining room was worth. <laughs> you know what I mean? You just, 
Okay, fine. Let's just let's, keep, let's be sensible about this. Now, if I kept it, it'd be worth some stupid number now. Yeah. Well, change, change hands for hundred and fifty thousand dollars now. Mm-hmm. So, what, what did you get into after? So, you sold that. Did you stay in it? What's yeah, the closing now? Well, then the Ducati factory was quite amused by what we were doing. Uh, they'd opened a trade account for us in Bologna. Uh, I'd rather quickly worked out that if I've got a mechanic that likes working on Ducatis and Ducati like us, there's a business. So while I was still working in banking, we also had a little tuning business building Ducatis. And we built 740. We, my business ethic is you don't do what everybody else is doing. You do something different. Otherwise, otherwise you automatically are controlled by what they're doing. <laughs> everybody in this country was building 916s, 996s. Nobody was doing 748. So we set up house to build 748s. And we raced 748 SPS. I persuaded the chap, the chap called Dwayne Mitchell. Another, I mean, I've been so lucky with the people I've met. And the way they've been happy to show me how things work. Uh, I, th I would like to think I've tried to repay it. Uh, we became his UK agent. We sold a chunk of EPROMs, but these EPROMs were programmable and you, you learned pretty quickly how it worked. Uh, but they were a hard sell to people because people, if they bought a tuning bit, a street rider needs to feel it. And these were adding one or two horsepower. They needed to, they needed to feel 10. So what we did was we concentrated on 853s and we built big bore 748s and you mm. a nice motorbike. It literally was the best bike Ducati never made. Superb things. But we probably built 40 or 50 of these over a few years. Um, and all the time I'm still working in banking. I, after my, after Hill Samuel shut, I never found a bank whose culture I felt I fitted with. I must have been, again, incredibly lucky to have found Hill Samuel because it suited me. But when they went, I had two other bank jobs and pretty brutally, it didn't work. And I was spending more and more time on the motorbike side of things. And I guess that wasn't exactly helping. So 2000, we, we did 748 SPS, sold that. And then I really went for it and bought a 748 RS. Now that was the production race version, uh, same as the factory bikes. We knew what we were doing pretty much with Ducatis by then. Uh, we got sponsorship from Donington. Uh, they wanted us to run a young man called Paul Jones, who was incredibly quick as a rider. But we later found out that he was basically very quick because he didn't slow down for anything, including the bike in front of him. So I've got a collection of Ducati works radiators that have been rammed into the back of motorcycles in front. And they were two and a half thousand quid a pop. I mean, Ugh. I'm doing this. I mean, I was never Mr. Bonus Man, but this was getting silly. And halfway through the year, I knew we were over. I mean, I found some pictures the other day. Uh, we got Paul on to second place on the grid at Alton. And I knew then that was our highest moment. We had this was before control tires. So we had a choice of one compound. This was your tire. The guys either side of us on that grid had a choice of up to six different compounds and constructions. Mm. You can't race with that much tied behind your back. I couldn't afford to have six tires, but I couldn't afford to be on the grid with people who did. Um, 
So while I dislike the concept of control product, I will concede that everybody having the same tires at least removes one major variable. Um, but I knew by the time we're halfway through the 748 year that it wasn't going to work um, as, a, as a going thing. By then, we'd learned tons. We had got a nice little business. I had pretty much had enough of working in London. I certainly had enough of banking. I'd worked out... I think you go through things in your head and you work out how do we get up here and i worked out what had gone wrong in my previous bank when we had the bad debt recovery operation you know we fixed that we we we'd all i was in a lending money zone when we got shut down but i kind of looked at what was happening in the economy and the people running the economy and i decided i was out because i was going to be the man that said yes to a whole bunch of loans that would go wrong when it finally hit the buffers now they waited till 2008 to hit the buffers and they did, but they did a much bigger job than I thought they would. But there you go, that's another story. I, 2003, had had enough. MotoGP had started. I'd gone down to Hareth to help out Gary Pynchon, who was then sports editor at MCN. I persuaded him that I could walk up pit lane and look at bikes and tell him something of what's going on. He bit on that I went down and to my amazement I wrote a I wrote a bank report about what I'd seen in the pit lane and I got a little digital camera taking pictures and because they didn't know who it was nobody shut the garage doors and Gary I think really did some work on the article uh, he got a bit of an award for it and I realized that there's something there I could do and all about then yeah, the bank thing was toast, and the important thing was to recognise it. I pulled out in the middle of 2003, did a couple of races in 2004 as a journalist with Gary, upset the people with the passes, Gen generally walked in like a square peg in a round hole, um, but decided I was going to do this, and walked out of banking with not a ton of cash, but with a small business, and a brain moving about six million miles an hour. I didn't, I think I did have a road bike then. I can't remember what has a road bike then. Uh, let me think this through. FZ VFR 750. I think I had the 907. No, uh, I, I got rid of the 907. I bought a 748. Then I sold the 748 to buy the Super Mono. Then I sold the Super Mono. And what did I buy as a street bike? I bought a Multistrada, two-valve Multistrada. Not my greatest choice. If you buy a motorbike that's high up in the air, you need to expect for it to pitch. And if you don't want it to pitch, you either swing them on the front like a BMW GS, or you need stiff springs. And the, the, the Ducati, the two-valve one, I mean, I love the design, actually. Everybody said it was ugly, but I thought it was really practical. Um, I quite liked it, but I couldn't deal with the pitch. Horrible. So we're stuck with that for a while. Then I, yeah, yes. But 2004, I'm starting to go to the races. First thing that happens is Rossi pulls out from Honda, signs for Yamaha, and I'm standing in pit lane thinking, what am I missing? What are they doing? And then I realised they'd extended the forks. He 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 was. It, you know, fast forward, I have spent 
10 years going from knowing absolutely nothing to building track bikes for customers and running my own British Supersport team at significant personal cost. Um, and I have learned something. I've learned that chassis position matters. Um, a chief Olin's, a top Olin's guy had raced my bike at Daytona. I'd learned about springs, about damping, about preload, about sag, about where you want to be in the stroke at various points of a corner. You, you, you've soaked all this in, but you haven't really joined it up. Mm. Sitting in a pit lane outside Rossi's bike, and everybody's going, oh, yeah, he's, he's matching the Yonder now, you know. And all I knew was that Yamahas had never stopped like Hondas. So I'm looking at this thing, and I realized that I'm looking at a set of fork legs that are at least 20 mil longer than the other Yamaha fork legs. You know, the preload adjuster had fork leg up coming up around it. So they've, they've made longer tubes, but they kept the air gap the same, and they sunk the preload adjuster in and the hydraulic adjuster. And I'm thinking, okay, and then I'm looking at the chassis position. I've worked out his bikes riding fully 20 mil higher than any other Yamaha. And they're using pitch to get the better grip, to let the bike stop as quick as the Hondas. Um, and I wrote this article saying that, you know, this is what they're doing. This is the sort of thing they're doing. And half the magazines wouldn't take it, but the other half did. And it turned out to be true. And I went from being a bank manager in a pit lane at MotoGP to being a wannabe journalist to being a syndicated journalist with 10 customers in the space of about 48 hours. Wow. It was just bloody marvellous. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Burgess. Thank you, Mr. Rossi. It was fantastic. Right, right, right. And I remember, I remember knocking on the, I mean, you did stuff that you just wouldn't do now. I knocked on the garage door. Somebody came to the door and I said, can I speak to Mr. Burgess, please? Uh, and he said, who shall I say is calling? I said, well, can you just say Neil Spaulding? And he comes out and, uh, ah, now I know who Neil Spaulding is. And he was great. He was absolutely fantastic. I mean, what, what, it, what I ended up doing, I, I think I said earlier, I like in business to do stuff other people are not doing. It makes life, you know, you might lose out in bulk, but you tend to at least have a business. Um, and I worked out pretty quickly that I sat and did, down and did race reports. I was out of business overnight because a lot of other people were doing that very successfully. I, I wanted to understand how the bikes worked. And it's really selfish. I was there so I could understand if that meant I had to drag everybody else along with me, then so be it. The only way I was nobody, going to... nobody else was doing this. No, because they'd had 20 years of two strokes and for at least 10 years, none of the designs had changed. So the, all the technical people had wandered off. Well, no, all the technical writers had wandered off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, still a, still a heavy duty technical game, but you were playing with little things, not big things. And here we are with four strokes. And it's a whole new ball game. Um, chassis flex needed in different ways. The tires are being overpowered. The engines made not enough power or too much power, depending on which factory you're with. Um, the riders are much more important. I remember standing on the outside of the first corner at Mugello. Three months before I resigned from the bank, I, I 
because we'd had the relationship with the Super Mono and the 748s, I'd, I'd managed to borrow a Multistrada off to Catty. And I basically, I was staying in Bologna. So I was riding to Magello every day, but rising the, riding the Futa Pass. So I have an 80 mile blast on a motorbike, no vehicle pass. So you don't have to chain it to something in the middle of the village then walk a mile into the circuit. I mean, it, again, wasn't a low stress, a low stress thing to do, but it was necessary before I walked away from the bank. I mean, I resigned about four weeks later, but at that race meeting, I remember walking down the, um, out, down the outside of the track on the access road to the outside of the first corner and watching people coming into that first corner like a dirt track race. They crested the hill, the thing's in a wobble, the front wheel comes down and they were backing them in. They didn't have the slipper clutches, they didn't have the corner entry computers. They just had big ornery four strokes and they were going for it. It was fantastic. And I knew that's where I wanted to be. It's it great, it was absolutely great. Yeah, street bike wise, Multistrada for a while, quite a long while actually. Um, by then, slipper clutches becoming normal. I was getting them made in small batches and I was still on the FIM mailing list because I've done the Super Mono series. I got onto the FIM mailing list, the, the, the regular faxes saying this rule, that rule, things like this. And this one turned up just after I'd left the bank. And it just said, uh, Supersport can have slipper clutches next year. So I phoned up the guys who were doing the Ducati clutches and said, Oi, I've got this fax. They refused to believe me to start with. But mm -hmm. I, said, I said, here's an order. I'll have, I'll have 40 of each. And they sort of said, at that point, they took me seriously. And I was in possession of 40. I, it took until the next spring. Um, and they just turned up just in time. I was walking around Snetterton paddock at the pre-season test for BSB with a carrier bag. Well, no, the um, uh, a kit bag full of slipper clutches. It's amazing. I can't believe you look back on it. You think, well, how on earth did I get away with this? You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Have you ever so, no. Okay. Well, here's a slipper. You, you must have spent the next few years in the MotoGP paddock, though. This is. This was all the research for your book, presumably now over the next years. Well, yeah, but I basically you the the GP. If you restrict yourself to technology, you're going to get an article every few weeks. Mm -hmm. It take you two or three races to do it. It was never going to make a lot of money. The clutch business was never going to make the sort of money you would like to to keep you in the fashion to which you'd like to be kept. Put the mm -hmm. two together and a little Ducati workshop and you're talking and that's what we did. So there were three things going on all the time. I have three, three different businesses, but all, all provided knowledge for each other. You know, every time we tried something, every time we learned something at MotoGP, you could go back and talk with the next Grand Prix mechanic about this or that. And you'd understand something else, or you'd understand at least what the objections were. Um, and then Haynes turned around and said, we'd like to write a book. I thought this is well out of my, uh, well out of my comfort zone. And somebody said, look, book, you don't, don't think of it as a book. Just think of it as chapters and think of each chapter as an article. So all they're asking you to do is write 26 articles. 
And I sat down and thought, well, I've got, I've probably got 15 articles that are written already that I could re-show. And so you, you put them together as a book. You know, we had a really good editor in Haynes. Um, good picture selection. I was, I had then also worked out that you can walk up and down pit lane, see stuff. If you don't take a picture of it, you've then got to hope they do it again or pay somebody else to take a picture. It makes things a lot easier if you're carrying a decent camera. So I'd got myself, I, was, I, I think I went through about five different levels of Nikon. Um, ended up on D810s, <coughs> which I bought an 850 now, but you know, I think they're all off on do, using a, a different technology now. I'm, I'm afraid I'm old school. But you learn to take pictures. I don't take pictures of things that are moving, but I can take pictures of things that are not moving. And I'm actually quite good at taking pictures of things that are not moving without the subject realizing I'm taking the picture. Because quite a few mechanics will get quite upset if you took a picture of their uh, sexy secret toy. Um, I didn't always print the secret pictures. It was more for education. What are they doing? I can write an article that talks about it then, because I've actually mm. seen the picture or got the picture, but that's different to upsetting them by actually printing it. Um, and I worked out that if you walked up pit lane, if you got into pit lane at 7.30 in the morning, so that's fully an hour and a half before any other press person turns up, half mm -hmm. an hour and a half before anything else happens. If you walked up pit lane at 7.30, well, quarter to eight, they would wheel the bikes out and they'd warm them up. And they basically, yeah, I think it's something that Jerry Burgess started in two strokes. He basically wanted the bike to be running warm and he wanted it to know, he wanted to know it, everything worked and the water didn't leak out and everything else while he still had time to change an engine before first practice. And this had become the norm. So you'd walk up and you'd look at what's going on in the bike. And the person, the only person doing any work at that point is the mechanic is blipping the throttle. If you're wearing headsets with noise suppressors and microphones, so I was all the time I was there, um, I used um, what were they? Uh, three uh, 3M Comtech type headsets, so like shotgun shooting ones. Um, so you could talk to somebody and it would cancel out the noise. But you could talk to a crew chief who was usually quite interested to know what you were writing about. And he was interested to know what was going on three garages up. And he'd trade you with information on what was going two garages in the other direction. But nobody would talk about their own bike. But one person was walking up pit lane, that was me. And I was having that conversation with three or four people every morning. So you get to the top of pit lane and there'd be a whole bunch of people who knew something more about the bike three garages down from them that they were keen to know. I would not talk about that week end. And they, I think I got some respect for that because that would have messed up the race. But there's only one person walked out the top of the pit lane having had all those conversations and that was me. And quite frankly, I could have gone home at nine o'clock every morning because I'd done my work. Everything else was find pictures to back things up and make sure nothing silly happens that I wasn't expecting. Mm. But you got so much information. But the, 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 the thing was, you had to have the respect of the crew chiefs. That means you didn't have to drop them in the, drop them in the poo. 
you had to be respectful of their secrets but keen to educate and everybody in that pit lane wanted people outside the sport outside the garages to understand how amazing the bikes were mm. so they would help and i in the end i just feel i was a conduit mm. you know to to people wanting people to understand just how amazing i mean we in the time i've been involved we've gone from the limit being 58 degrees or 57 degrees of lean we nearly got 10 degrees more now how is that even possible you know, at 60 degrees, a motorbike's just like an aircraft. At 60 degrees, there's two gravities going through to the center of that bike. So the tires are holding back something weighing, getting on for 500 kilos. And they're working and they work brilliantly and until right until the minute they don't. Um, but at 66 degrees, you're up at probably two and a half gravities. So instead of five, you, you're talking about six. 100 kilos you know there's just extraordinary forces being generated just by lean um before you start sticking wings on or ride height adjusters like they have now you know so but yeah road bike wise what was i doing then i got fed up with the uh multistrada i didn't want anything complicated i bought a moto guzzi griso People very nice old bike i think it's lovely Mm. proper old-fashioned 1970s 1980s motorbike made with fresh metal um it's needed a bit of work we've got slightly better fueling and erlins were absolutely fantastic i i said i want to learn about suspension and they didn't actually say what bike have you got i said i've got a griso that has got horrible suspension they fell over laughing because i understand griso in swedish is pig uh, <laughs> um but they agreed and they built me a shock that was extremely close to a current the then current moto 2 shock and by god it worked it made a massive difference you know we changed spring rates we same preload we changed compression damping and we had a blow-off piston in their car kits uh replacement <laughs> car kits they have uh some a, a dual dual flow valve i think it's dfv it's called and basically if you hit a pothole or a manhole cover there's a piston what was a solid piston in a normal ttx shock has a series of washers on top and it blows off mm. so suddenly your suspension works it's particularly useful on something like a gp on a moto gp bike or a, a moto 2 bike if you go up on the curbs and you suddenly start hitting big lumps of curb, it will suddenly let your suspension both be progressive and well damped elsewhere, but also let the wheel move when it's hit, it gets a big bang. Um, it does exactly the same on the Griso. The Griso has got a big problem with the weight of the shaft. And it's although it's shaft drive, with it, what was called chain thrust. When you accelerate you on a Griso, the back. You still have that bike? Sorry? You still have that bike? I bought a second one and got rid of the first one. Okay. I still have a Griso. And I, and in my head, I've decided I'm keeping a Griso. For all the reasons, basically, it's not modern. It is cantankerous. It does start at the moment. And it just makes a wonderful noise. And it handles nice. It's, and it's, it, it's obviously the Italians have a, 
chassis setup uh, familiarity because because it feels just like a Ducati in th in the way it rides, mm. um, but it doesn't have the hassle of rubber belt drives and and Desmos, which you know if you it, I mean it, it all sounds absolutely wonderful, but if you spend fifteen years fixing them, I'm afraid it does wear rather thin. So. I'm quite happy to have a pair of push rods and lock nuts for the valve adjustment. But all the, all the work on the greaser all went into the chassis. So what, um, what year did you bring your book out? Well, I did the first one, 2006. Mm -hmm. I did a second one, which was basically the first one. Um, expect it's Essentially, all three books are the same. But the first one, I understood engines and not a lot of chassis. The second one, I got my head round uh, suspension. Um, and by I did the third one, I got my head round chassis. So they're the same book, but they're expanding. Hmm. And every time we did one, we reduce. I mean, you can't give a book out which includes the story of the Honda Moto GP bike unless you go back to day one. So, but we pricey it. We'd, we'd reduce that. And then we put the rest of the years in. So the story is basically there. But by the time we got the third one, I honestly think it's pretty much a complete piece of work. You, it tells you about linkages. It tells you about electronics. It tells you about throttle control. It tells you about crankshaft weight and direction. It tells you about valve gear. And critically, it tells you about chassis flex. I'm not aware of any other book that's actually come out and said motorbikes are not supposed to be rigid, certainly not race bikes. Hmm. So road bikes are rigid, but once you've leaned over 45 degrees, you kind of need the chassis to be helping on the suspension front. And you do that by very carefully controlled bend, basically. Um, the, the chassis needs to have the right mixture of resistance to torsional twist, to lateral bending and to braking forces. Uh, and that's not easy to achieve. It's one piece of metal doing three completely different things. So after you finished with the book, what what have you been doing from then to now? What's that time period look like for you? I'm afraid the commercial side came out of me. Um, we're making less, and with the demise of the print industry, there was less money to be made. If you, from a journalist perspective, if you sell something to the internet, you've given it away, which mm -hmm. doesn't work if your income was based on syndicating something 10 times mm -hmm. to me it was obvious that my business model was toast and there's a point at which you know i mean when you don't sit for 17 years that is a very long time um i did the book because i knew i was going to leave but then i worked out the only way to make any money out of the book was to write it myself get it edited by a friend get it laid out by another friend pay to get it printed, get it delivered to my house. We had two and a half thousand books in the garage at here at one point. Oh, wow. Uh, at two kilos each, that's 5,000 kilos. Um, I wasn't even sure the garage floor would take this, the weight of that, you know. Um, but we took all, we, we set up a website. Dorna were very, very helpful. Mm. At the last minute, I decided to make it, get it made an official Dorna book. Uh, they, I think, were quite keen well, in fact, to do a deal with me, they probably are quite desperate to have a book. Um, but they then let me go on to their TV feed. They didn't have, at the time have an equivalent to what they have now, where they have a technical person in pit lane. 
so at the Valencia test, we I'd had two and a half thousand books delivered just before I left. Um, and at the Valencia test, I asked if I could go into the commentary box for the test. And I just basically gave away all the information I'd normally write on an article. And my partner was at home watching the computer screen and she just phoned me up and said, we've, we've sold 500 books in the last three hours. <laughs> it just took off. <laughs> it was amazing. Fantastic. Was yeah. Best, I mean, if you, if you average out over the years you did it and work out how much you made, it still wasn't a well-paid job, but it was very, very good for the ego. And mm. I'm really proud of the book. We did three print runs, mm. Mm. seven and a half thousands. Every print run, there was one a year, and each year I brought it up to date. So although there is, it's called the third edition, there are three print runs of the third edition. There's mm. the 2017 one, the 2018 one, the 2019 one. And we basically topped it up. I think the last version has 16 more pages than the first one. But you, you can, again, you can't sell a book if it's two years old. Mm. You know, now sales have dropped right off. I've got fifty left, and the project's done. Project is done. Now, so what next? What next for you? Well, the clutches are still trundling out. Right. No great shakes, but it's a nice little business. Mm -hmm. But I was asked eight years ago by Stuart Higgs, who runs British Superbikes. For some help in obtaining Hondas for a starter class. Honda had stopped making the 125s. His starter series was still 125s, five years after they stopped production. And the only other bike that was available was a Honda called the NSF 250R, hmm. but it was being sold for a lot of money. And I went and had a chat with uh, several people I knew in Honda on Stuart's behalf to say, would, could you do a deal? And the long and short of it is I ended up with a Honda trade account and I'm bringing in all the bikes for the British Talent Cup. Oh, that's fantastic. So you're still involved? Still involved. I still go, I go to all the BSB meetings where the Talent Cup runs. Mm -hmm. And I go to Silverstone, where, of course, it runs as a support race to the Grand Prix. We've got between, it's been on the year, between 30 and 36 riders. Uh, the first ones have now got to Grand Prix. We've got people in the European Talent Cup. We've got people in the Junior World Championship. Um, yeah, it's starting to work. We've uh, The best thing is that Dorna came on board and did a sort of comparative, uh, sorry, a companion series where they provided bikes that didn't actually work. They pulled out. So I then had the job of putting together the replacement, which is a one-make series for the Hondas. We had to buy in Dorna bikes to keep the kids running. Uh, we had to set up a rule book. We had to set up a training scheme. Uh, Dorna very kindly provide a trainer. The guy we've got at the moment is superb, but typically Dorna trainers turn up thinking they're dealing with Spanish kids and Spanish kids, as far as I can work out, are born with a track map in their hands. Our kids didn't have a clue. Yeah. You know? yeah. If, you, if, you, if you like the Dorna, trainer is operating at 20,000 feet and we had a whole bunch of kids at 1,000 feet mm. and what we've done is find a British trainer who understands both sides of the deal and he is dragging the kids up to 5,000 feet and dragging the Dorna guy down to 10. And suddenly we have a conversation. Each, each rider now has a one-on-one -on -one 
15 minutes on a Friday. And great idea again from the trainers was on Saturday, depending on their practice times, groups of five or six riders go together into a room with two trainers and the trainers spark a conversation and then kind of guide it where the kids are all helping each other. They're all critiquing each other's riding abilities in certain corners. Um, we have, they have knocked off, not we, they have knocked off with the same bikes and the same tires, two seconds a lap at virtually every track we go to in the last two years. Because of this communication. Yeah. We have a first time, a proper training program. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're not, we're not asking old riders per se to do the training. We are trying to teach kids. This is how Marquez does it. Or increasingly, if I may say how, how Jorge Martin does it, you know, but yeah, it's working. I'm very, very pleased with what they are doing. Uh, I've withdrawn a bit. I just bring in bikes and parts now. So still running the slipper clubs clutch business, still riding Griso and uh, still and and I've spent years and years and years and years saying I'd never buy one. I bought a GS Suzuki, a GS BMW two years ago. Just don't tell Pierre. Yeah, well, I did. <laughs> <laughs> He's now running around like a headless chicken designing something that would be far better. I've pointed no, out no. mine here. I mean, it, it is actually an unbelievably efficient motorcycle. Mm -hmm. down i mean i haven't done any long distance european trips for 15 years the last one was on the on the multistrada and i took it down to austria last year and it was great it's absolutely mm -hmm. great um you know you sit thinking i don't need any of this technology i tell you what cruise control on a wet on an autobahn with the rain teeming down is amazing because it the bike isn't jerk you when you're riding along you're jerking the throttle you don't know you are but it's not a smooth ride you put you put the computer control on it just sits there and all you've got to do is watch out for the car in front because this mm. one doesn't have active slowdown and slow it down when you're getting a bit too close no it, mm. it's amazing i did three and a half thousand miles in about 10 days mm. uh, yeah I'm, I'm actually well happy and my lady will get on the back of it well, we'll, go, cool. we'll go totally off in the back roads nice and slowly and it likes going slow as well it's good yeah Life well neil well, listen, um, last time I saw you, obviously, you came out and gave us a really wonderful um, talk um, at the Barbie Museum, um, Birmingham to Iowa Water. Um, that is a talk that you, you're still giving from time to time, or are you modifying that? Well, I modify them all the time, depending on what I learn. Mm. That one I've given a couple of times. Vintage clubs, veteran clubs really do like that one, because that was about the old British industry. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and stuff. But yesterday I was yesterday? No, Wednesday. I was in Swansea at the Swansea University where they have a degree and PhD level motorcycle engineering course, giving them a upgrade on what I knew about MotoGP technology. I just ran through all the major technologies that have uh, come out of MotoGP in the last twenty years. Um well, not, I'm gonna I got one more question for you and then we'll let you go. Okay. Who's 2024, who's going to be MotoGP world champion? Now that's actually a very difficult question to answer. Three or four things have happened in the last few days that make me think 
do not discount. You can, 2024 is going to be between Magnaia, Martin and Marquez. 2025 could easily be Honda or Yamaha. Mm. There's a reason those bikes have not, those two factories have not forgotten how to make a racing motorcycle. The way the series has been run for the last few years has meant that they've been at a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. The change of rules we've got where um, all of a sudden they've got concessions so they can change stuff so they can get their designs to work well mm -hmm. with the latest Ducatis makes me think that they will be by 2025 absolutely in the ballpark. Do Interesting. not those well, there. Marini was quite quick on that thing in uh, in practice already. So exactly, and that was the that wasn't expected. That means the bike is good because he didn't. You know, Marini's good. Marquez, from a pure racing perspective, is unarguably faster. But Marquez doesn't. I don't think Marquez really understands how much he does to make the bike work. He's like a Casey Stoner. He's just he he could win a world championship on a push bike with an outboard engine, whereas. Marini is going to require a bike that works for him. And the fact that he went so quick means that it's 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 on the way. And, it and he's really... not Marini's not a crasher. I mean, he goes a long time without coming off that bike. So yes. he's obviously got a more pragmatic approach to it. But both the way it's worked out, Honda and Yamaha have had such a bad year. They both qualify for additional testing tires and for and engines yeah yeah and but critically the ability to change the design of those engines mm -hmm. that, that's a, this concession system is incredibly important because just two or three years ago suzuki got their crankshaft inertia wrong it was too heavy and they were crashing the front all the time well you can't write off a japanese factory's entire moto gp effort by telling them they're not allowed to change anything, you know, they talk, they're blowing 30, 40, 50 million a year. There's only so many times you're going to allow that to happen before you decide not to come back. And Honda and Yamaha have taken so much grief since Michelin insisted on a tire pressure rule. I, you know, if you listen to the Ducati riders' comments, it's as if they've only just started following the rule. Yet Honda and Yamaha. Have probably followed it from day one let's wait mm -hmm. and see. while they get their bikes right over the next two years i think you're going to see a massive japanese renaissance well beautiful well we will leave you on that note and neil spaulding thank you so much